This is not the media. This is hell. Hi, it's producer Alex again. I'm sorry. I know you're expecting Chuck to come back from vacation, and he did. Uh, But he also came back sick and had to cancel the live show. So I'm sitting in my bedroom, talking quietly, trying not to wake my baby, and recording a playlist episode for you. Don't worry, though, I put together a real good one. It's four hours of interviews all about how we got here. Here being, uh, not going to call it late stage capitalism, because that seems optimistic for our brand. Uh, End stage capitalism, maybe? Early stage retro feudalism? Whatever you call it, let's explore the state of American politics and global capitalism together. This week, Patrick Deneen examines the inevitable, imminent, slow collapse of the liberal order. Philip Murawski explains why neoliberalism keeps surviving its own disasters. Keller Easterling surveys the new frontier of political power beyond the state. Gordon Lafer tells us how capital bought American politicians state by state, and we end with our very first interview after the 2016 election, in which Richard Seymour explains how Trump devoured American politics. This is going to be, f- well, it's not going to be fun. It's going to be hell. Uh, enjoy. Uh, back next week, God willing. Liberalism has failed. It cannot be salvaged. It's done. Ironically, What killed liberalism is its own success. But that's what happens when you have a liberation theory based first and foremost on individual rights. Here to help us understand how and why liberalism failed, political scientist Patrick J. Deneen is author of Why Liberalism Failed. Welcome to This Is Hell, Patrick. Thank you for having me. We want to thank listener Steve F. for suggesting Patrick as a guest on This Is Hell. Patrick is David A. Potenziani, Memorial Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame. His most recent book prior to Why Liberalism Failed is 2016's Conserving America, Essays on Present Discontents. You have a quote from the late great historian Barbara Tuckman, writing in the classic A Distant Mirror, the calamitous 14th century. When the gap between ideal and real becomes too wide, the system breaks down. How much do you think liberalism failed, in your opinion, because of any gap between what it was meant to be ideally and what it really became? I, when I came across this quote as I was finishing the book, I thought this is the perfect uh, summation of, of my argument. Uh, Tuckman is describing the loss of legitimacy, uh, particularly of the old aristocracy in the Middle Ages, uh, the, the sense of a gap, especially between claims about chivalry and protection of the weak and the actual reality of the lived experience here of the, of the feudal order. And I kind of thought this is a remarkably similar situation in which we find ourselves today, that similar kind of gap. On the one hand, the claim of um, ever greater and more expansive equality, and yet the felt experience by many people in the most advanced liberal countries of the West, uh, that they are not actually partaking and enjoying the fruits of, of their societies. And so I, I began the book, I think, just with that quote as a kind of nice summary uh, view of kind of where I think our present calamity lies. Let's talk about that. I know this is kind of odd, but let's just talk about that gap in chivalry. When we do think of chivalry nowadays, we still have a positive view or image of it. How much do we historically uh, 
rewrite history and forget about the gap of political philosophies and ideologies? Well, I, I think certainly from our standpoint, uh, you might be right that, that we have sort of a maybe a hazy, romantic view of chivalry. Uh, but at the same time, I think we also are a little bit suspicious of its claims that it tend to be, tend, can tend to be used as a shroud of the powerful to defend their kind of inequality over the weak. Um, even today, you know, it's sort of suspicious if you uh, um, if a man were to stand up uh, from sitting on a bus to give way to a woman, it's sort of seen as a as an act of uh, superiority in some ways uh, and frowned frowned upon. And I think that reflects. Um, what had become the view of many that chivalry was actually just a mask for power, was really just a way to shroud uh, existing power relationships. So when Tuckman writes that quote, what she's saying is that the legitimacy of an order in which you had a kind of an, a, a, a hereditary, hereditary aristocracy ceased to be believed, especially by the people who were, uh, who were not part of that aristocracy. And I, and I think by extension, you could say that there's a kind of a growing belief among many who don't um, enjoy the fruits uh, of uh, of our society, uh, thinking of the, the lower middle class and so forth, uh, that the claims of equality, especially coming from the upper class, the commitment to equality that one hears uh, among uh, elites today, are not to be believed. How does liberalism shroud those power relations in a way that might be similar to the way that chivalry did? Well, so we, I guess we'd have to begin with what I mean by liberalism, and it's not, of course, the narrow partisan term where we use liberal to define the political left. I really mean kind of our comprehensive political order in which both the left and the right partake. So this is an old political philosophy. It has roots back uh, centuries. Uh, think of the philosophies of John Locke or even of our founding fathers, philosophies that argued in particular for the overturning of the old aristocratic order and its replacement with a new open society so that your position in society wasn't defined by your birth, uh, by the position of your birth, by the, uh, the position or rank of your parents. And so on the one hand, uh, liberalism is a kind of an effort to crack open what had been fixed uh, and ascribed positions in society. Uh, on the other hand, it opens up a society in which its aim, we could say the deepest aim of liberalism is to liberate humans from each other, uh, from any relationship that's not chosen, that, to which we don't consent, um, and also, by extension, to liberate us in a way from nature. And in, in kind of pursuing these kind of two forms of liberty, the liberty from other people and the, and the liberty from nature, we create a scenario in which, interestingly and ironically, you oh, create the conditions for the, for the formation of a new aristocracy, in a sense, the, the aristocracy that we see increasingly today, um, what we call a meritocracy, right? Um, uh, often those people who are educated at the top universities you know, occupy positions of power in our society. Uh, and so it's, in a way, I guess it's comparable to what I describe as the beginning, sort of the, uh, the loss of legitimacy of the Middle Ages, to the extent that you have um, a new aristocracy that people think is just as fixed and just as uh, um, um, difficult in some ways to uh, uh, to, uh, to, to uh, change or to alter. 
you say that this new aristocracy is even more pernicious than the one that was trying to be replaced by liberalism. Why do you see this, uh, the new aristocracy as more pernicious than the one that we overthrew with liberalism? Well, uh, in, in the following sense, that uh, those, I think, who occupy the position of the new aristocracy, again, we could call them the new, the new meritocrats, the meritocracy, actually don't really believe that they are aristocrats or meritocrats. They don't believe they're in a position of um, some superiority uh, or advantage uh, because of the way in which uh, liberalism, in a sense, operates on the belief that we are sort of self-making. There's a kind of belief that we all begin equal. We all begin from a position of equality, and any differentiation is simply the result of your own work and your own effort. Now, now we know, of course, that there are extraordinary advantages that come from one's, uh, uh, from one's family, from one's uh, uh, birthright, and so forth, in interesting, comparable ways to the old aristocracy. But the belief in this openness and the capacity for um, people to change their positions, which some people do, but most people don't, uh, leads to a kind of base belief in a deeper equality that tends to shroud, even from those in a superior position, their own um, their own advantages. That's fascinating. So what explains to you why the earliest liberal philosophers, if you will, did not foresee what liberalism would become, did not foresee the uh, unsustainable progress that you can make with only focusing on individual rights in a way to liberate everybody? Well, let me take the case of our, our founding fathers, so the people who founded the Constitution. Uh, now, on, on the one hand, philosophically, those people who founded our Constitution, we can think of uh, the most popular man on Broadway today, Alexander Hamilton, wanted a society in which people uh, could really liberate themselves from whatever background they came from. Uh, he himself came from uh, fairly disadvantaged circumstances and made, uh, made something of himself. And we think of this as the American dream. But in order to do this, we really do have to, in some ways, reconfigure society so that people can be more self-making uh, than ever before in history. And so this means liberating them from particular bonds to people, particular um, bonds to places, uh, to history and traditions. We could say cultural inheritances have to be minimized. Everything, in some ways, we could say becomes more fluid. Everything that we would uh, think about as kind of forming the human identity become subject to our choice. And so we become much more self-making, and this is the condition of our liberty. Now, this could be stated as a philosophical ambition without seeing what would be some of the, the real dangers of this view once it became sort of universalized, because the Founding Fathers were writing at a time in which society was made up of very thick bonds and very thick relationships, very deep senses of relationships to family and to place and tradition and culture and religion. Um, And in a way, the argument of my book is that liberalism, we see it failing because it has been so successful in achieving these very aims and ends, but at the cost of those kinds of thick bonds and relationships that were always a kind of moderating influence on this kind of radical individuation that we see increasingly as a mark of our society. 
Your book was completed three weeks before the 2016 presidential election, and you write its main arguments matured over the past decade before Brexit or President Trump was even conceivable. Liberalism created the conditions and the tools for the ascent of its own worst nightmare, yet it lacks the self-knowledge to understand its own culpability. How much, then, do you blame liberalism for Trump? How did liberalism create its own worst nightmare? Was it inevitable that liberalism would create a Trump? Well, I don't know if it was Trump in particular. I was as surprised as anyone. But I do think think it's not surprising that there would be a yearning, uh, especially for those who are not part of this meritocratic elite, the, the winners in our society, uh, that there would be a craving for someone who could be a, a figure of strength and could use the, the very tools of, our, of the liberation of the elite. So here, using the tools of the state and of the market uh, and more broadly, uh, um, the sort of social forms uh, for the advantage of those who were not, um, in a sense, winning in our society. So in this sense, I, I think it's unsurprising. But um, it's revealing also the extent to which uh, you could say many people who are strong opponents of Donald Trump fixate on Trump, the phenomena, and sort of um, are really incurious about the conditions that gave rise to a Trump. They really view it as a, you know, there has to be some external explanation. It has to be Russia or manipulation of the election or the FBI manipulating the election and so forth, that there can't be an inherent reason within the liberal order itself that gave rise, uh, as, as you know, in comparable ways it did in England with Brexit, that gave rise to a kind of reaction uh, from those uh, who feel left outside of the, uh, of the liberal, of the, of the ascent of the liberal order. I missed my button. Uh, so you write only uh, politics grounded in the experience of, of a polis, uh, polis uh, lives shared with a sense of common purpose, with obligations and gratitude arising from sorrows, hopes and joys lived in generational time and with the cultivation of capacities of trust and faith can begin to take the place of our era, era's distrust, estrangement, hostility and hatreds. How much is that counter to the rugged individuality that we not only embrace today, but has been embraced since Alexis de Tocqueville. Well, I I actually take issue with uh, with the view that uh, we, at least today, that we enjoy a kind of rugged individuality. Part part of the argument of the book is actually that the rise of what we think of as individualism, the capacity sort of to live this life. Um, shorn of these thicker bonds um, that uh, we could think about as once being more constitutive of ourselves, that far from being simply the result of rugged individuality, uh, that increasingly this is the uh, consequence of a pretty massive structure uh, created both through the state as well as by the kind of state's efforts as well to help forge a certain kind of economic order. Uh, so that with the rise of individualism, the idealized sort of vision of the liberal human being choosing oneself, making oneself, that this this vision of the individual requires a pretty massive apparatus of the state and of uh, the market and of science and technology and the transformation of really, we could say, the both the social, the private, and the political and economic order of the world to make possible the creation of this sort of radically individual itself. So we, we tend to think, and I think your question posed this 
we tend to think that there's this divide between the individual and, and sort of collectivism or statism. And really what I think more deeply is, is in fact the case is that the individual, the vision of this individual only can come into being with a pretty massive construction of um, a, a legal, political, economic, and technological order that makes such an individual possible. Uh, and so um, when I pose then as a kind of counter to this, uh, the creation or at least the cultivation of certain kinds of relationships and practices, the kind of cultivation of a new kind of culture, it's to really argue that if we don't want to fall into the kind of twin um, dangers of both statism and individualism, we kind of have to create something in the middle. Uh, and that something in the middle was traditionally, in, in Alexis de Tocqueville's time, was, was associations or civil society. Um, even that's been increasingly hollowed out. Um, so I do think it has to start fairly close to home in the cultivation of practices in the, in the home, in the neighborhood, uh, for those who are religious in their churches and their synagogues and so forth, uh, and build outward from there. So is liberalism then a threat to civil society? Because a lot of people might think that civil society is part of liberalism. Well, of course, I, I think in the classical theory of liberalism, there was the view that, that liberalism in particular could kind of um, provide a place, uh, a kind of pr protective space for the um, flourishing of civil society, right? That, that, that the state would be limited and wouldn't seek to fill all the areas of life. For example, as we see in totalitarian regimes in which fascism or communism attempts to eliminate civil society at the point of a gun. And in this way, I think liberalism has been it's proven to be more insidious um, than those more obviously violent and horrific regimes. And insidious in the following way, by really promoting, in a sense, the vision of the liberated self, there's a way in which civil society isn't directly threatened, again, at the point of a gun, but it's indirectly threatened simply by loss of kind of interest and commitment of these individuated selves. And so we, look, we can look at a lot of social science data, um, stuff, uh, for example, going back to the classic study by Robert Putnam on bowling alone or more recent studies by my colleague here at Notre Dame, Christian Smith, and his studies of religion. And we see across a broad sphere of what we think about as classical civil society, you know, it's radical declines, it even collapses, of participation, of uh, membership, of um, strong identification of people with those aspects of civil society, whether it's associations, whether it's voluntary groups, whether it's religious groups, uh, and so forth. So uh, what's striking is that without, um, without in, a, in a way, enforcing a certain view about civil society as existed in other regimes, there's been a kind of weakening of civil society simply by a kind of, um, uh, uh, we could say, a kind of the, the, the expansion of and, um, uh, and the deepening sense of individualism uh, that has now proven to be a deep threat to, to the existence of civil society. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I love this idea of, if you will, a kind of collectivized individual. You write, sacrifice and patience are not the hallmarks. Patience are not the hallmarks of the age of statist individualism, but they will be needed in abundance for us to usher in a better, doubtless very different time after liberalism. How much has liberalism become statist individualism? Was it always statist individualism? And I, don't, I guess the third part of this question is, 
how much of individuals are we? Well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll revert to a to an example that I offer in the book uh, that I think is illustrative. It, it was a um, it's actually a part of President Obama's reelection campaign. It was a it was an ad that ran. I think it was just on the internet. I don't think it was on the television. And it was called The Life of Julia. Uh, and it portrayed uh, in a series of kind of slides the life of a woman basically from, from birth until shortly before death. And the life of a woman who was able to lead the life that she wanted to live through a series of government programs. Uh, and really, was, of course, this was an effort to sort of say that President Obama and the, go- and the government was providing a whole series of benefits and supports for women or people like Julia to lead the kind of life that they might hope to lead. But what was striking about that ad, that, that kind of political commercial, was that there was no other human being portrayed in that, uh, portrayed in that ad. In other words, her individualism was the result of a series of government programs. And you have to think for a moment about the kind of paradox of this, right? The, the sort of the, the classic view of seeing collectivism, the government, the sort of statist uh, uh, apparition, uh, is actually the source of our deepest and most pervasive liberty. Um, and I think this is, you could say, in the phrase that you use, statist individual or statist individualism, uh, this is the kind of deepest irony of, um, of this vision of the individuated self, that it's only through a kind of very expansive state that one can experience this form of almost the, the individual that's portrayed in the state of nature, right? This kind of radically autonomous individual self. So you, you ask, have we become this? I think, again, social science suggests we've become more and more individualistic over time. Have we always been this way? No, I don't think we've always been this way. Um, but I do, I do think, uh, and this is, again, the argument of the book, that there's a kind of deep um, a kind of thumb on the scale and a, and a deep undercurrent in the liberal regime that moves us in this direction, that places this vision of the, of the individuated self as the ideal to which we should aim and which government policy should ultimately support, as well as economics, um, science and technology, education, and so forth. Um, and it seems to me that uh, to the extent that we see this crisis within the liberal order, that there is a kind of need to press against um, the, the deeper inclinations of the regime itself. You write how liberalism today contradicts itself. How much does liberalism inherently contradict itself? Well, I guess in its, um, as I've been saying, in, in a way, there's a kind of, there is a logic uh, to its basic claims. And in one sense, you could say it simply achieved what it set out to do to liberate people from any unchosen form of life. Right? That's really kind of at the heart of liberalism, is the vision of a human being that isn't, in a way, told what to be or who to be, uh, what, what kind of human you should be, what kind of job you should have, what your identity should be. That this is the ideal, is the human who can really choose who they are. But as I've been saying, the irony is that in order to make this real, in order to realize this human being, we actually enter a condition in which, ironically enough, we cease to really experience this freedom. And I could you know, further describe it in the following way, to create the kind of state that's needed to support the creation of this individual, to have the kind of economy, the kind of market that we need, increasingly a globalized market, 
that supports the creation of this radically individuated self, to have the kind of scientific and technological um, apparatus that allows us to roll back the limits that nature imposes upon us. Let's take those three examples, state, market, and technology. When people today talk about three areas of life where they feel relatively little control over their fates, those are the three of the areas that will often come to the fore, that we feel like we don't control our government, we feel like we don't control our economy, and we feel like we don't control the sort of the trajectory of science and technology in sort of developing, for example, automation that will put us out of work and so forth. Um, so the tools of our liberation in some ways become our captors, if, if, if I could put it that way. You write how liberalism is the first of the modern world's three great competitor political ideologies. And with the demise of fascism and communism, it is the only ideology still with a claim to viability. There are those who fear that when liberalism fails, it will mean the revival of one of the other ideologies of the modern world. The left fears a rise of fascism, and the right is frightened by the prospects of communism. How much are liberalism's competitors in political uh, ideology, which are in demise, fascism and communism, how much are they actually dead, or have their deaths been greatly exaggerated? Well, that's a great question. That's a great way to put it, too. Um, I've been fascinated by the responses to my book. Uh, really, uh, some very, very hard-hitting criticisms from both the left and the right, and the left seeing in my pages the threat of fascism, and the right seeing in my pages the threat of communism. So you're quite right about that. There's the, the felt sense that if we don't defend liberalism, both on the left and the right, uh, that one of these two kind of competitor ideologies is all that's available to us. And I guess I, I would want to say that, um, A, I, I would hope that it would be possible for us to begin to think about organizing political society on a non-ideological basis. And But what I mean by that is, is to eschew um, some some uh, unitary conception of what what it is what what human society should look like, um, and pursue that unitary conception of what human society should look like. That that's how what I understand by ideology. It's an idea that we have about politics that to which we could say the life world ultimately has to conform. And that was certainly true under communism and certainly true under fascism. And in the West, we've tended to believe that liberalism is the one belief system that doesn't demand that we conform to a certain vision of human life. Uh, and that allows us to kind of a, a wide swath and, a, and an area for differentiation to lead lives of very different types. You can pursue your own religion, pursue your own beliefs, have your hobbies, what you will. But the argument that I've made is that actually in a very deep and often undetectable level, the liberal order and its deepest presuppositions does shape the world according to its idea of human nature, that is to say, that liberated and free autonomous self, and that it creates the world in that image. So in the name of freedom, <laughs> I would say, uh, ought we not at least to entertain the possibility that it's possible to think of something beyond these three ideologies? Um, and to begin, the seems to me the, the hard, but seems to me necessary work of thinking anew about the nature of politics, in, in part to push, push back against what are, I think, these inherent and very troubling um, tendencies within the liberal order itself. How much did liberalism need the last competing ideology that failed, uh, Soviet communism, in order to succeed to some degree? How much does the lack of a competitive ideology lead to the corruption and decay of any regime? 
I, that's, I think that's a great question. Um, I, it, what I'm struck by increasingly is how much of the breakdown of our contemporary political order, and just think about this in the breakdown of the parties, is really, um, I think, in significant part, not only, but significant part because of the loss of a competitor, of an outside competitor that really draws together what are um, inherently um, often um, conflicting uh, elements within the society. So the kind of loss of a broad middle in America today, um, it seems to me, is at least in part because uh, there's there's not a kind of capacity to agree uh, among among many Americans that that uh, was easier to engender uh, with the threat of um, you know with the threat of communism or before that the threat of fascism, uh, and even within the sort of political parties that we think about today, the, the configurations of the political parties, we see a kind of tearing apart. Uh, for example, in the in the Republican Party, the the breakdown of the kind of relationship between libertarians and social conservatives, or the Democratic Party, the the tension between the more kind of traditional labor left and the more progressive identity politics left, um, the kind of debates that are taking place within those parties. So I think I think um, it's it's actually the case that um, part of the great success of liberalism, we tend to look back at the fifties as one of the high watermarks of the liberal American order, the kind of um, you know the, the ideal uh, of, uh, of of what American politics should have looked like, and the American economy as well, and how much of that was because of this sort of external pressure. You were talking about how the state continues to expand, ironically, even though we believe that we have this idea of uh, rugged individualism. But over the past. 40 years, we've had president after president, whether Republican or Democrat. Uh, they've all proposed some limiting of government, if not making it so small that it drowns in a bathtub. We're also, we've also seen the privatization of what were publicly held goods in the past. So how is the expansion of government that you mentioned taking place while simultaneously government has been supposedly shrinking? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I suppose I, what I see kind of expansion of government, it's government tends to expand in areas where that conform to the vision of the liberal, the liberated human individual, um, whereas government tends to decline, I guess uh, you could say, uh, in areas or at least to withdraw in areas where, uh, where that, that ideal self is, is, um, uh, is, is not the, it's not the primary aim. And one can think of the deregulation, for example, of much of, much of the economy, right? The, the, uh, certainly under Ronald Reagan and continuing, and the expansion of, of markets through NAFTA and other global trade agreements. So on the one hand, um, this is a kind of withdrawal of the government, but it's also the government constructing, right, being, being active in the construction of a certain kind of market system that, that kind of results in the liberation of the self. So it's, on the one hand, it's a kind of withdrawal, I guess you could say, but it's a very active effort of the government to advance a certain vision of the economy. Uh, that that does require the government to support a certain kind of market system, and you know, so you could say this has been the agenda of the, especially of the political right. The agenda of the political left um, claims to want to constrain this economic uh, um, arrangement, uh, but doesn't really succeed. Where the left has really succeeded is the expansion of kind of the issues of the sexual revolution, uh, the um, uh, same-sex marriage, um, the protecting rights to abortion, more, more or less, uh, certainly uh, expending strenuous efforts in that area, um, and uh, uh, 
uh, increasing belief that provision of birth control is kind of should be supported by uh, by taxpayer money. Uh, so you could say here you see sort of an expansion of government or government efforts to secure the ideal of the autonomous individual in the sort of private sexual realm. So you have the left and the right both, in a sense, succeeding in the areas that support the liberation of the individual, while failing in the areas where you could say um, government would would need to expend more efforts to support, for example, uh, the family values that has been valued by the right, uh, and to support a kind of more um, equitable and constrained economic system that's that's typically been supported by the left. I'm going to ask a lot of questions that kind of fall into this category of, can't we save liberalism? How much is money the problem with liberalism? Can't we simply have public financing of political campaigns and the end of Citizens United, and all of a sudden we'll be able to save liberalism? Well, uh, my analysis uh, uh, suggests that we have, uh, in a way, deeper deeper and more challenging problems than any maybe specific issues such as this. Now, I, I, I personally uh, would favor um, a constraint of the amount of money in our electoral system. Um, you know, uh, Met- Citizens United is based on, a, on an older uh, Supreme Court decision called Buckley versus Vallejo back in the 1970s that designated that, that money was speech. <laughs> that, was, that was the decision, that money was really speech. It seems like that's a that's a kind of mistaken concept. Money's not speech. Speech is speech. And so we should protect speech, but money can be regulated, um, it seems to me. So it, wouldn't, it certainly wouldn't be a bad thing for us to, to uh, have less money in the system. But one of, one of, my, uh, one of my chapters discusses um, what I think is a, is, a more, is a deeper and more challenging problem for liberal democracy, which is a kind of tension ultimately between liberalism and democracy, between uh, really the the more privatistic set of commitments within the liberal order and the more public commitments that are needed in a democratic order, right? The more civic and public commitments that are needed if one is a democracy of people are to rule. And so even if one were to get money out of the system, I'm not sure, or less money running uh, our elections, uh, I'm really not sure that the result would ultimately be to make us a more democratic society in the sense that people would become more civic-minded and more civic-spirited. Um, here again, I, I resort to the example of Alexis de Tocqueville, who, when he comes to America in the 1830s, he's stunned. He said that if you were to remove the, the ability of, of people to participate in politics in America, it would be as if they lost half their lives. Today, you know, uh, uh, while there are some people who are deeply committed to politics today, uh, you know, roughly 50% of the populace doesn't vote, and even even less than that in off-year elections, in non-presidential elections. And voting is just one way in which we can participate in our civic life. Um, so I, I think the I think the issue is in many ways deeper than um, simply the question, for example, of, uh, of of public financing of elections. How much can the private sector save liberalism by continuing to create new technologies, new consumer goods that improve our lives, no matter how illiberal the government may be acting? Well, I, here I think it's a mixed uh, it's a it's a mixed bag uh, to the extent that, uh, like any tool, um, technology as we call it, <laughs> right? Technology is many things can count as technology. But uh, what we think of as technology today, particularly electronic technology and so forth, 
um, is, is like any tool. It can be used for ill or for good. And one thing that strikes me is that we're really not, as a culture and as a civilization, able to ask the question, for example, is this particular technology going to be beneficial for our shared public and civic lives? Or is it potentially going to be damaging to our shared public and civic lives? I mean, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of data that shows, for example, um, I mean, just things like, very obviously, the cell phones and so forth, um, uh, have, have made people more individualistic, have made people uh, even more lonely, according to um, Sherry Turkle, who's written a book called Alone Together. Uh, but um, we're not really able as a kind of civilization to ask questions about the use and purposes and ends of technology. We tend to simply adopt technology, and then it tends to conform to our purposes of separating ourselves. Right? Think of our preference for example, to adopt the automobile and to use it to create the suburbs as opposed to using a different technology, streetcar systems, in order to create vibrant, more vibrant urban cityscapes. Our preference tends to be for technology that allows us to pursue the individuated self. So I would say that uh, your question, again, needs a kind of a deeper digging in the first instance into what is it about our deepest commitments that lead us to tend to use technology in certain ways and not in other ways. How much is the failure of liberalism, the lack of fairness, of liberty, of social justice, in the economics that created liberalism? Was liberalism about liberty, but its economic system was not? Well, I think the you could say that... Um, Liberalism as the political philosophy is born alongside with uh, really the, the market economic system, and they really are born kind of as twins joined at the hip. Uh, again, if I can invoke John Locke, John Locke uh, uh, in one of his chapters in the same book on the social contract and the vision of the liberated individual in the state of nature, he has a chapter on economics, on particularly on property, in which he argues that at the root of um, our of, of the rights that we deem to be most worthy of protection, uh, and certainly the protection from encroachment from the government, uh, is the right to property, the right to own property and to use property as we wish. And you could say that for someone like Locke and for our founding fathers, the right to use property as we wish, which includes the stuff of the world as well as our own selves, right? The kind of property of our own selves, our labor, and so forth. That this is at the heart of the liberal understanding of the of the freedom of the human person. So I would I would say that um, when you invoke things like fairness and social justice, um, these were um, concerns, especially of later liberals uh, who were concerned about the growing inequality uh, that resulted from a political system that especially allowed for the great inequalities of property uh, accumulation. Um, but again, I would say that there's a sort of a heavy thumb on the scale within liberal orders that it exists to allow for the accumulation of fairly extensive uh, economic inequality. Uh, and uh, one of its primary reasons to come into existence is to displace a kind of unproductive older aristocracy, what we began talking about. It was to displace that older aristocracy, not to create equality, but to allow for the creation of a new kind of aristocracy, the aristocracy especially of wealth. So I, I would say that at the, at the sort of the, the 
in the cradle of the liberal order uh, was the expectation that there would be high levels of economic inequality. You write about the anti-culture of liberalism. I know you've ta- uh, touched on this already a couple of times, but what do you mean by the by liberalism being anti-culture? Well, this goes back to the the vision. We could say the uh, the ideal of this individuated self, right? Again, the the kind of creature that's posited that surmised to have existed in a state of nature. Uh, but of course, because this person doesn't actually exist in reality, we're all born to particular people in particular places with particular histories and customs, and usually a religious uh, background that you're raised in. Um, that something has to something has to, in some senses, change to allow for people to experience that kind of liberty. And one of the most fundamental changes is the you could say the kind of replacement with a society that was once filled with a variety of cultures. You could say cultures are, um, you know, partake in the kind of geographic circumstances of where one is. You have cultures that are uh, more rural cultures. You have more urban cultures. You have cultures in deserts. You have cultures in places near the ocean and so forth associated with fishing. There's also, of course, religious cultures. Different religious traditions um, give rise to different kinds of cultural experiences. So you could say that... um, uh, in a kind of pre-liberal world, you had a kind of thick uh, diversity of cultures and cultural practices. But one of the main, you could say, one of the main purposes or ends of the liberal order is to weaken these forms of culture because these are these are ways of organizing life that do um, kind of limit the kind of humans that we can become. And so over time, liberalism really kind of, in, uh, you could say, results in the replacement of a world of, of a variety of cultures with this, this kind of anti-culture, this absence of a culture, this, this um, pervasive, homogenized, standardized um, existence that we have today that, you know, we tend to say we have popular culture, we have um, you know, different kinds of um, manufactured culture, but what we really don't have in many cases, or certainly has been weakened, are really kind of thick, formative cultural experiences uh, that would have once been the norm. And and the the result of the the absence of this uh, of cultures and its replacement with the anti culture is that this really serves especially the advantage of those people who in a sense flourish without those kinds of cultural guidelines we could say the kinds of norms and the kinds of lessons that once would have been taught within cultural settings. This is one of the preconditions for the rise of this new meritocracy. Is uh, these are people who tend to really flourish and thrive in the absence uh, of these kinds of cultural uh, forms. And I think the what we see as the growing kind of devastation, especially among those who we could say are the losers in our economic system, uh, is that they also are the losers in the anti-culture, uh, that they don't do well, not just economically, but don't do well in, you could say, broadly social, in social terms, family formation, and uh, um, uh, raising children uh, to uh, to succeed in life and uh, uh, avoiding um, you know the, the depredations of uh, drug use or alcohol or out of wedlock childbirth and so forth that the breakdown of cultural forms and cultural norms have been very bad for those who haven't uh, um, uh, you know benefited from our uh, from the advantages of our society while the breakdown or the kind of the creation of this anti-culture is very good for those um, who thrive in such a condition. 
We have been speaking with political scientist Patrick J. Deneen. He is author of Why Liberalism Failed. Again, I want to thank listener Steve F. for suggesting Patrick as a guest on This Is Hell. One last question for you, Patrick. And as it is with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience will hate your response. And I've got two good questions from hell for you. I might have to just send the second one to you. You write, when Alexis de Tocqueville visited America in the early decades of the 19th century, he observed that Americans tended to act differently from and better than their individualistic and selfish ideology. Then you quote de Tocqueville writing, the Americans do more honor to their philosophy than to themselves. In that sense, how much do we all work against and vote against our best self-interest? Because we've discussed that many times with Thomas Frank, and I'm wondering how it's, is it not just Kansas? How much is liberalism and its focus on individual liberty leading us to the individual working against their own self-interest? Yeah, that is the question from hell. <laughs> uh, well, I, again, I, if we think about it in in, uh, in in terms of sort of at the level of the individual, um, I, I doubt any of us would would think of ourselves as self deceived. But I, I, I do think there is something to uh, the supposition that um, when we when we sort of pursue our own interests um, at the at the deeper exclusion, and we could say the more societal uh, forms. Of, of some conception of the common good, and that that's very difficult to achieve in a nation as diverse and uh, and as uh, differentiated as ours. Um, that we end up actually damaging our own individual liberty. Uh, that's that's the deepest irony that I found to be the result of this liberal order. Patrick, this has really been a great conversation. I enjoyed your uh, book a lot. The name of the book is Why Liberalism Failed. Our guest has been the author of that book, Patrick J. Deneen. Thank you so much for being on This Is Hell this week. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Chuck spoke with Patrick Deneen in February of this year. Next up, Philip Murawski. On the line with us right now is author Philip Murawski. Good morning, Philip. Good morning. Uh, He is the author of Never Let a Serious Crisis Go to Waste, How Neoliberalism Survived the Financial Meltdown. You start by writing Conjure, if you will, a primal sequence encountered in B-grade horror films where the celluloid protagonist suffers a terrifying encounter with doom, yet on the cusp of disaster abruptly wakes to a different world, which initially seems normal, but eventually is revealed to be a second nightmare, more ghastly than the first. Something like that has become manifest in real life since the onset of the crisis, which started in 2007. So what brought us here? What would you believe to be, and I know that this isn't what your book is about. Your book is not about how we got here, but how it stayed this way. But what do you believe uh, to be neoliberalism? Uh, What is so bad as the way in which a more monstrous form of neoliberalism was created from that neoliberalism? I mean, neoliberalism got us here. How much worse can neoliberalism get? Um, a lot worse. <laughs> but first, <laughs> I think that uh, people need to understand it better. And in fact, if you're wondering why the book was written, I mean, it was written more as a provocation to the left, I think, instead to try to understand uh, what has happened to it, especially in the crisis. Uh, and, uh, you know, it started off that I thought that this was the most important uh, economic event of my lifetime, uh, this crisis, and that I should 
do something writing about its intellectual history. But then as time went on, I was really shocked and appalled how both the economics profession, the orthodox economics profession, and neoliberal theorists seemed to be coming through unscathed and actually better off than they were before. And so um, that's really the purpose of the book, to try to understand that. You're right, I'm not trying to talk about you know the standard crisis book, which you know gives its own little bullet point list of the causes of the crisis. What I want to understand is why the crisis didn't harm any of these uh, doctrines, in a way. So um, one of the main issues is the way people talk about neoliberalism, and they don't understand it very well. So let me kind of launch into that just a little bit. Um, neoliberals first are not conservatives, and they they are not libertarians, and they don't believe in laissez-faire. I can't believe the amount of confusion that there is in, in the media, and in fact, you know, reasonably intelligent political people too, that they don't understand this. Neoliberals believe in a strong state. They need a strong state to impose the kinds of market society that they think should exist. And their key doctrine, and this is the part that I think is hardest to understand, is that the market mainly exists as an information processor more powerful than any human being. And they mean this. I mean, they're quite serious about it. They mean it knows more than any human being ever could. And then what they do is they structure their uh, their politics around that. So, for example, that's their, ar- the, their basic argument against socialism is that people think that they can plan to make the economy work, but because people are inevitably stupider than the economy, <laughs> there's no way that they could seriously do that or carry that out. So that's the first interesting thing about it, is that it's really about knowledge. I mean, it's not, it's not just about the economy in some narrow sense. It's not just about power. It's also about what people can know and can't know. And interestingly enough, because of that, it's, an, it's also a philosophy of what it means to be a successful human being. And so part of the book is about that, too, is that all kinds of people, I think, um, don't care about politics in the sense that they don't want to read these people, they, you know, the, the neoliberals. They don't want to know very much about them. But all kinds of things can happen to them in their own life that makes them more and more uh, neoliberal in ways that they don't even understand. But neoliberalism has percolated down kind of to the level of everyday life for many people. And that's the beginning of one of the arguments as to why the neoliberals win. So, so just real quick, um, how does then neoliberalism change us? How does it make us redefine ourselves as citizens in ways that people may not realize? Because I think a lot of people don't realize that the way in which they view the world right now is being guided by neoliberalism, if they know it or not. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, this is a, you know, it's a, that's an interesting and a, uh, elaborate question. Right. But I think everyday le- neoliberalism begins with this idea that you are the entrepreneur of yourself. And the reason why this is important and it's neoliberal is that if, as they really believe all of us are flawed thinkers, we must learn to transform ourselves to accept these kind of packets of truth that are delivered by the market and adjust to them, okay? So we have to learn kind of how to accede to the fact that the market knows more than we know. Now, in order for that to be true, there is no true, unique self that I must remain faithful to. See, so, I mean, you know, neoliberalism is not just a political 
philosophy. It's also philosophy of the self, and this is the part that, that percolates down to everyday life. Okay. Um, basically, since there's no unique self, everything about me or myself can be outsourced or invested in. I have no class identity. Everything is fair game to be erased, changed, and altered. And by the way, that includes education. So education is not about finding ourselves. It's not about you know becoming a solid citizen. It's about investing in human capital for future payoff. In fact, one of the main thinkers of the neoclassical thought collective is Gary Becker, who invented a lot of this human capital talk. Okay, and when it comes to failure, all failures are due our personal failures due to a lack of making bad choice or making bad choices or not undertaking risk. Okay. So what this is all about is that, you know, we must learn to undertake risk in the marketplace to make ourselves the kind of person that the market wants us to be. All right. Now, um, how does this work for people who don't, you know, really want to read about um, uh, social theory or something? Well, uh, I think there's one great example is um, this person named Ilana Gershon has a wonderful set of articles on about how Facebook is like training wheels for neoliberalism. It teaches you how to be a neoliberal agent. For example, it takes your information for free and it sells it to others for a profit. And then, for example, if some of your uh, revelations tend to be embarrassing or wrong, you know, or maybe you want to erase them, it is up to you to fix it. Facebook has no responsibility for any of the either falsehoods or problems that it creates by, by uh, transmitting this stuff. Um, and so what you're taught to do is I construct a profile on Facebook from stereotypic materials and try to measure my worth by attracting fake friends with artificial metrics. See, it's like a, it's like a training wheel market. Subtle algorithms force me to continually update my profile, teaching me that there's no stable stable, coherent self that I must return to. Indeed, I can pretend to be anything I want to be on Facebook. See? So the whole point of that Facebook example is it shows you that people can adopt a neoliberal worldview, because think how many people are on Facebook, without even knowing or caring about politics or the theory behind it. See, so that's really an important part, not the only part of neoliberalism that makes it strong, but that's an important part of neoliberalism. So if a return on investment is everything when you are living in a neoliberal world, uh, that makes me think about a poll that I heard on CBS radio news yesterday where they they asked women would they marry a man who would uh, would not – necessarily economically support them and it was something like 78 percent said that they wouldn't and when they asked men the same thing of women it said it was something like 20 something percent said that they would not uh, uh, marry somebody who could not economically support them or economically support their family financially support their uh, their family so the take so that would make me think oh this is a reflection of neoliberalism but on the other hand we've heard of people choosing their husbands and wives choosing their spouses beta based on finances in the past. So how new is us viewing ourselves in this neoliberal light? How new is this uh, neoliberal way of viewing ourselves? Is it something that is new or is it something that we've always somewhat practiced and now it's just on steroids? Yeah, that's an interesting question because it sort of equates um, the, the rise of neoliberalism with the idea that a lot there's a fair amount of marketization in our own personal lives. Right. 
But what's interesting about this is that um, this resistance against uh, marketization is totally unavailing from their point of view. Okay, that it doesn't it, it doesn't make any difference, and the, and the reason is because that what's new about neoliberalism is that there's no core self that you have to be true to. See, there's no more, there's no necessarily necessarily moral self. There's no fixed self that somehow we we uh, undermine by having market relations. Okay, so all there is really, all we can really know is what is told to us by the market. So, in quick answer to your question, yes, there have always been market relations in personal life. Yes, but in their theory, there's nothing more to be found other than that. And so that's what's new. And I think that's what's new in, in modern people's attitudes, too, that they can still believe, like, you know, the sort of Michael Sandel stuff, like there's a moral limit to where the market is. But the trouble is, what's interesting about that is that uh, people can't very much anymore agree as to where that is or why that should apply to them. See, that's, a, that's the neoliberal insight. And that leads to a lack of reaction to when we have this neoliberal financial crisis, we have no way in which we can relate to it because neoliberalism is so much a part of us, so much a part of the way in which we think. And you point uh, towards the left on this. One of the things that was making me remember, actually, not one of the things, it made, when I was reading your book, it made me remember numerous interviews that we have done with Dean Baker and one of them in the past was where he was talking to us about how difficult it is to get a dissertation, how difficult it is, not even a dissertation, how difficult it is to get a paper published at a major academic university in their economic school if it's something that does not follow along the line of neoliberal economics. How much is the let's say, the privatization or the influence by of corporations on the infrastructure of the economics industry, if you will, the academic and economics industry, how much of that impact, uh, how much has that led to our lack of reaction to neoliberalism bringing about a failure of our system? Yeah. Um, am I allowed to break that question down into parts? Go, feel free. I mean, we have 35 um, minutes, so yeah, feel okay. free. Let, look, one part of the question is, um, what's the difference between the economic orthodoxy and neoliberalism? And there is a difference. See, so, I mean, that's part of, of uh, what I insist on in the book. Uh, to be really quick about that, um, basically, uh, neoclassical economics goes back to the 1870s. It's a very sort of mechanistic conception of the economy. As a matter of fact, it was based on physics, um, and it's taught as microeconomics now. Now, um, partly what the uh, economic orthodoxy that neoclassical believes is that there are market failures and they have to be fixed by the state, okay? And don't worry, um, I won't go into any more than that. But that's kind of what they believe. The neoliberals are very, very different than that. For them, the market is not this kind of allocator of scarce resources to give an end, okay? Instead, it is this information processor. That's what it is. And what that means is that people can't come to understand it in all its wonderful majesty, and therefore they have to simply just acquiesce in it. It's a very, very different uh, story than the neoclassical story. Um, and in fact, a lot of people on the left don't seem to know the difference. I'm, I'm thinking of here David Harvey or Naomi Klein and so forth. Is is that um, 
they treat all neoclassical economics as neoliberal. And part of the reason I understand why they do that is because there is a kind of a crossover. You know, there's a, there's a, a, a set that's the union of both, and it's people like Milton Friedman. So if everyone thinks that Milton Friedman is the preeminent uh, neoliberal, then they get confused. Um, now, uh, the reason that that's important, now I'm getting back to the rest of your question, okay. is that um, over time, the neoclassical profession has become more neoliberal. See, and this is this would uh, this may not interest everybody, but this would be certainly fascinating for people who do what I do, which is the history of economic right, thought. Right. That um, that over time, neoliberalism has become more and more embedded in the way that economics is taught to the point where now it is more likely that the market is taught as though it were an information processor than it would have been even, say, 30 years ago or something among the neoclassicals. Now, as to what Dean said, yes, that's absolutely correct. That is, the more neoliberal it becomes, the harder and harder it becomes for, to publish uh, papers which really seriously challenge neoliberalism in conventional economics outlets. But it's not impossible. Um, I take I think of somebody like uh, Piketty or, in some respects, or uh, Joseph Stiglitz as as people who are trying to do that. But one thing I argue in the book is that that is a failed strategy, and that's one of the great weaknesses of the left, is that trying to use neoclassical economics to undo the neoliberal trend actually just ends up with having the left shooting itself pretty much in the foot. Okay. Why can't we? I mean, that's the big argument. Well, let me reintroduce you first before we move on. We are speaking with Philip Murawski. He is author of Never Let a Serious Crisis Go to Waste, How Neoliberalism Survived the Financial Meltdown. Philip is a historian and philosophy of economic thought at the University of Notre Dame, Indiana. He is the author of 2002's Machine Dreams, Economics Becomes a Cyborg Science, and 1999's More Heat Than Light, Economics as Social Physics, Physics as Nature's Economics. He also appeared in Adam Curtis's amazing BBC documentary, The Trap. If you're not aware of that, you should go look it up on Google or IMDb or whatever. Uh, Also go to our website and you can click on Philip's name and it takes you directly to the Verso Books page where you can purchase the book directly from the publisher. Um, Let's see, what did I want? Oh, so... is the how much of the problem is simple language? Because you mentioned this in your book, but again, getting back to Dean Baker, uh, Dean was saying how we have to get away from. I mean, he's telling us this eight nine years ago. Don't say deregulation. It's not being deregulated. Neoliberals aren't about deregulating. They're about re-regulating so it can help them out. Now he's saying, don't use the term the market has this problem, the market has that problem. Use the term capitalism has this problem or capitalism has that problem. What happens when even the left, even the critics of neoliberalism fall into this trap of saying that neoliberalism is about deregulation and they're about re-regulation. Yeah, I think what happens is that they basically get snookered by the neoliberals. I mean, this is one of the great weaknesses. I agree with Dean on this, at least in this in this respect, that um, one of the great weaknesses of the left is that the neoliberals have a far more elaborate political program which can co-opt people on the left in a way that the left uh, doesn't have at all. And, and let me just give you an example of this, okay, because I think it makes it clear. Um, I, especially towards the end of the book, argue that the neoliberals have been showing in the crisis and with regard to, to climate change 
that they have a full-spectrum politics. Uh, and it isn't about deregulation at all. I mean, it's much more elaborate than that. And let me give you an idea of what it is. That they have uh, separate policies that they put into, into play for the short term, for the medium term, and for the long term. And let me say what they are and then give you examples of them. In the short term, what they do is they create a fog of doubt. Matter of fact, this is the short term for them is denialism. It happened in the, the economic crisis. You know, initially what they said is, no, no, don't do anything. It'll just fix itself. See, that's a kind of denialism. And the kind of denialism that I think your listeners might be more familiar with is global warming denialism, right? No, there's no problem. You know, people don't do it, blah, 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 blah. Now, what I think people on the left don't understand is that they don't really think they're going to change the science or the economics. They, they're not stupid, okay? Short-term denialism is a way of buying time for their other policies, okay? And that's for the medium-term and long-term policies. Their medium-term policies is not to, uh, not to deregulate, but to have any problems that it looks like markets throw up, to institute more and, with, from their point of view, better markets supposedly address the problem, okay? Um, and the way this showed up in the, the financial crisis was market-based bank rescue, market-based financial innovation, okay? That their argument would be if you just allow it to, to uh, have more markets. Matter of fact, this is Robert Schiller's line, too. If we just have more markets and, you know, financial instruments, you know, that would have fixed the problem in the first place, okay? That's a medium-term fix. And, by the way, with global warming... <clears throat> the medium-term fix is uh, trading carbon permits, which, by the way, New York Times just, you know, had a huge, big, wet kiss for yesterday. Right. All right. That, that's the way we should go. That is a neoliberal project, too. But what's interesting is that even in the medium term, they don't really believe that that will necessarily fix all of these problems. See, that's why they're so much smarter than the left. First, the reason they like those medium-term things is because they can co-opt the left to, to support them. So, for example, people on the left feel that they have to support uh, trading carbon permits because that's the only thing that could get passed in the Congress, blah, blah, blah. You see? So, basically, the left gets sucked into these neoliberal projects. Or think about the health care, uh, Obamacare. It's the same right. thing. Okay? And then they have the long-term. And this is why they win. Their long-term uh, politics is a politics of utopia. It's a politics of everything being wonderful. Okay? And... The way this is going to happen is that entrepreneurs will develop outside-of-the-box wild ideas, which the market will then decide are the right solutions to the grand problems of humanity. Okay. Now, let me give you some examples again because it makes it more clear. Um, what are the, the solutions in the case of global warming? It's geoengineering. Now, I don't know if your <laughs> readers have ever heard of this, or if your readers, your listeners have ever heard of this, but geoengineering is things like space mirrors or pumping sulfur dioxide up into the troposphere to block out the sun and so forth. And the important point here to make is that this will be done not by governments but by entrepreneurs. Right, okay? right. And the same thing happened in the global crisis. Okay? In the global crisis, you know, there was this idea that if we just let entrepreneurs invent even new and better ways, to both financialize the economy and to, you know, uh, uh, you know deal with uh, various kinds of debt and so forth, what will happen is that we will, in the long term, get out of the crisis, okay? So what's interesting is that 
each of these three kinds of policies can usually be found coming out of different parts of the neoliberal thought collective, and that's why I use the terminology of thought collective. No one person advocates all three of these altogether. Basically, they tend to come out of think tanks. But what is interesting is some of the same ones come out of the same think tanks. So, for example, for global warming, you can get a denialist part coming out of one part of the think tank and a carbon permit trading part coming out of another part of the same think tank. And those would seem to be contradictory otherwise. But what the left doesn't understand is this is part of a much larger project to essentially occupy the entire space of understanding of how to deal with a crisis. See, so it isn't about deregulation at all. It's about how to essentially set the terms of debate as to how crises will be dealt with. That is so frightening, and it reinforces why we call this show This Is Hell. Uh, That is just, (laughs) and what's really annoying about it is that it goes so under everybody's radar. So it is, how much don't people understand that neoliberalism is about philosophy, is about politics, and it's not about some set of economic rules that were set in stone by Adam Smith uh, three or 250 years ago. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think the left is pretty clueless, basically, <laughs> about this. Um, and one way I would go about trying to suggest that is that what Adam Smith and all those people, you know, 250 years ago were about were, was classical liberalism. That's the kind of liberalism that believes that. You know, the, the, the market just naturally develops and has to be kept in its sort of proper sphere. And then there's the role for this night watchman state who would stand outside and make sure it kind of worked. Okay? I know that's a little crude, but that's kind of what classical liberalism sounds like. John Stuart Mill is my favorite example there. Neoliberalism is neo because it doesn't buy any of that. There are no limits, in a sense, to the market because the market is an epistemic and philosophical proposition, all right? I mean, it's just a way of seeing the world, it's a way of understanding yourself. And moreover, they don't believe in this night watchman state. They believe that they have to take over a strong state to institute these kinds of markets in places where they might either not exist or secondarily in the stuff we were just talking about, um, to institute new markets whenever markets seem to fail or break down, to teach people that that's how you fix economic problems. So you can't get away without having a strong state to do that. So um, they aren't anything like classical liberals. And it's true, I just get uh, sent up the wall when people say, oh, it's just all in Adam Smith or it's like Adam Smith or something like that. I mean, it's just a, a total misrepresentation of the history. So why can't we uh, explain to the audience why we cannot simply uh, turn back the clock? Why can't we just simply regulate our way out of the neoliberal problems we have today? Why can't we, within that playing field, on that pitch, why can't we just fix the problems? You know, I've been told... Dodd-Frank, that's going to fix the situation. I've been told 
that Glass-Steagall will we'll bring back Glass-Steagall. That'll solve the situation. I've been told, oh, all you do is from 1945 to 1975, we had this massive growth in the U.S. economy. All we have to do is take those things, maybe modernize them a little bit for today's economy, uh, maybe modernize Glass-Steagall a little bit for today's economy. All we have to do is take that and plug that in here. How does that reinforce neoliberal thinking when we think all we have to do is take a past reform, maybe tweak it, and plug it in to fix the system again? Right. Yeah. Another complicated question. It's going to be hard to break it down into pieces, but, you know, kind That's of, why we got time. Yeah, <laughs> let me try. Um, first is that there, the, the left has no equivalent of the neoliberal thought collective. All right. I know they got a couple of think tanks, and, you know, there's people and all that kind of stuff. But the Thought Collective is actually much larger and more elaborate than that, precisely because their own theory tells them that they have to organize in order to reconfigure how the economy thinks about, uh, sorry, how people think about the economy in their own lives. And so this has been going on since the founding of Mont Pelerin Society, which I think of as one of the central nodes of the neoliberal thought collective in 1947. So you can see, you know, we've got something that's been going on for, you know, 60, 70 years now that's fairly elaborate. Um, And so that's part of the issue, is that um, because it's so elaborate, it's also well entrenched into existing governance structures. Okay, you know, because that was part of its uh, its self-conception that, you know, we need a strong state, we need these kind of intellectual backups to to have this. So any attempt to kind of tinker at the edges, which is the way I think of Dodd-Frank, for example, is immediately met by a mobilization of the ways in which that tinkering can be altered in directions that are already well understood by participants in the neoliberal thought collective. See? So it's, it's, it's the idea of this kind of bricolure, you know, who can just not have any history and come t- just tinker with stuff, as opposed to an organized political activity that's got deep roots. Okay, so that's part of it. Okay, but another way is that I think that the the left's understanding of the market is is woefully behind the times. Okay, I mean that that um, there there is this sense that. Maybe the only thing that goes wrong with the market is something like this older neoclassical sense that, oh, there's some kind of market failure that's local, right? There's some market that's not working right. And so that if we just kind of put in a few more rules, maybe it'll work right. I think that the, that commitment on the part of people on the left, that that's their understanding of markets, is totally ineffectual now. That's not the dominant view of markets that's being promulgated in the culture, which is largely neoliberal. So that's another issue. And I would think, I mean, if you're just asking me, where would the resistance that might be serious come from? It would come from hitting at the heart of the neoliberal doctrine instead, not this kind of tinkering around the edges. And what's the heart of the doctrine? The very image of the market as being epistemic. That is, that is really about knowledge. It's about knowledge communication. It's about knowledge generation and so forth. Um, that the left would have to have a counter story of what markets were and how they operated in order to even have an idea of the kind of political projects that they would themselves be able to support in some kind of serious and sustained way. 
I know that's that's kind of vague, but uh, you know, let me just give one specific example. Okay, mm-hmm. um, let's since you're talking kind of finance, right, Dodd Frank? Let's let right. me talk finance too. I don't think people even understand what repo is about, <laughs> and I'm not going to explain it to your audience. Okay. Okay. Repo is the heart of the modern financial sector. Okay. And if the left had a story about repo, that it was really an attempt to kind of play musical chairs, to push off all the bad consequences of what you do when you borrow stupidly onto other people, then we would begin to see that the whole financial system is based upon uh, an untenable proposition. Okay? That's different than Dodd-Frank, right? Right, right. (laughs) You see? And that's what the left isn't capable of doing right now. But is that out of just mere, uh, is that out of fear? Is that out of uh, like a... No, I think it's out of lack of understanding, that they still think this is all about uh, market good, government bad. It's just a waste of time. That, That in itself is part of the fog that neoliberals love to keep going. So it's not just an American thing of no, not, not wanting to no. question See, capitalism that's thing or... That's really important. Okay. And I try to stress, maybe not even enough in the book, that when Mont Pelerin starts, it's not all America. As a matter of fact, it's a mixture of a bunch of different traditions, and its first meeting is in Switzerland. Mont Pelerin, I don't think, is the center of neoliberalism anymore, necessarily, but it's a very international organization, still, by the way, capped at 500 members. And it's, it has uh, representative members throughout the world, with the exception, I think, well, no, 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 there's Chinese now in it, too, so that's different. Um, so it's always been a transnational thought collective, and it's always looked at things, not nationally and not within specific cultures, but, but as a kind of a transnational project, okay? And see, there's nothing like that on the left, either. And do you think that any of this lack of criticism, the lack of pointing out that, uh, you know, neoliberalism is an untenable, unsustainable uh, position, do you think that lack of critique has anything to do with a fear of being labeled socialist? (laughs) Should I say something that'll get me in trouble here? Yeah, please Um, do. (laughs) I think even socialism itself is one of these kind of, older notions of how politics is arrayed, which the neoliberals have managed to kind of do an end run around. Okay. See, I don't know, what does it mean to be socialist now when the main neoliberal project is to take over the state to create the kind of markets that they believe should exist? You see? Uh, well, what? Um, that, that somehow, you know, merely running the state for the, the, the benefit of society as a whole is some kind of different political project? No, I mean, what they've done is they've confused what it means to be a socialist anymore, <laughs> and that's why they're so effective. So I think this whole idea that, the, look, let me put it another way. Socialism, by the way, as a concept, dates from the early 19th century. I don't know if people know that. And where it comes from is that uh, there grew up this idea that there were these two different spheres, a market sphere and society, okay? And society was somehow set against the market sphere. 
Now, I don't know, maybe that was a good description in the 19th century of the way things were developing. But I don't think any of those concepts hold water anymore. So you would like the left to question a lot of the assumptions that they make about the way in which neoliberalism works, the way in which we are agents within our society. You would like them to question those assumptions and to... In order to question assumptions, you often have to undo myths. Americans don't seem too crazy about undoing myths. We even have President Obama now has to come out, as every president does, whether they're Democrat or Republican, have to come out and praise Ronald Reagan. There are people... Yeah, I know. That is funny. No, but but it's funny, but it's also a sign of what I'm saying. Right. What is socialism when, you know, there's such confusion over what, uh, what oppositional politics would look like? Uh, here, let me just say one thing. Okay. It'll probably get me in more trouble. Good. Um, why does the left, which supposedly believes in the efficacy of planning, seem to act as though spontaneous self-organization of politics and spontaneous intellectual debate from below constitutes the gold standard of social epistemology? Why is that? See? that It's the left that's self-contradictory in many ways, that hasn't thought through a lot of its own position. So is it fair to say that neoliberalism, can we blame it on Reagan? Can we say it's Reaganism? And more importantly, uh, because there are those who say that Ronald Reagan would even be unhappy about the way in which if he came, uh, came back to life today, he would say that I can't believe the way the government looks, the way that Republicanism, the Republican Party looks, I can't believe the way that markets look. He would even be shocked at how far it's gone. So a lot of people say that this is an exaggerated version of Reagan, Reaganism that we live in today. Other people say that this is Reaganism and isn't it wonderful? And there's others who say this is Reaganism and that's why it's so bad. Could, did Reaganism, is that the beginning of neoliberalism? No, it's not. Um, uh, the hard thing to un- understand about this is that um, while there are certainly political figures who have managed to begin to institute in a big way neoliberal policies, and Reagan being one, Thatcher another, Howard in Australia, and so forth, that they themselves really are not thinkers and don't pursue coherent policies themselves because they're politicians. I mean, and by the way, the neoliberals understand this entirely, you know, that you have to adjust to a certain extent your project to the specific uh, times and specific cultural areas, okay? So while average person thinks this politics should be associated with the names of the famous politicians, in fact, I would argue, no, that's not true. Basically what they're doing is they're listening to a lot of the people that I'm trying to write the history of, this, this neoliberal thought collective, who supply them with whole arrays of policies which they then pick and choose as being convenient for their particular situation. You see, So there's, if you try to phrase it as Reaganism, there really is no particular logic to it. So the kind of questions that you're asking, well, is it coherent, does it undo itself, actually you know, doesn't bother a neoliberal at all. Is that they knew it was going to start out piecemeal. They knew, you know, it was going to be kind of pick and choose, given the politics of the situation. It's that they have a long-term strategy, whether there's a Reagan or a Thatcher or somebody else, and that they constantly are trying to pursue that long-term policy. That's what we have to understand to understand any logic at all. You write that uh, three years on, it now looks as though the neoliberals have come through the crisis unscathed. 
far from the economic crisis constituting the invigorating jolt of the 1930s redux for the neoliberal thought collective, early returns seemed instead to have ratified their intransigence, repetitiveness, and lack of imagination. Now it confirms that they were right to stick to their guns because, contrary to every expectation, nothing much has been changed by the crisis. But the neoliberals have not won by default. That would be a sorry interpretation of events. Neoliberals don't let a serious crisis go to waste. Instead, the Thought Collective subsequently made a number of moves that cemented their triumph. Did they make this calculation pre-crisis, or is this something no. organically that just happened? Yeah, see, that's a good question, too. Because it would be a mistake to perceive them as being, you know, so... <laughs> you know, having such foresight that they were powerful and stuff like that. It doesn't work like that. I mean, at first, when the crisis first hit, they felt, you know, a little bit threatened, too. I I actually write about that in the book, that, you know, they have this meeting in New York where they kind of a little bit discombobulated and everything. So, you know, that's what you would sort of expect. But what's interesting is that they are organized enough that they regroup and they realize that, you know, their position, it dictates that when you have a crisis, you have the ability to define the exception. And by the way, this is associated with a, a German political thinker known as Karl Schmitt. Um, and in defining the exception, you can much more easily bring your policies into play during a crisis than you can during years of normal politics. Now, uh, Naomi Klein, in her shock doctrine, had a little bit of uh, sense of this, but I don't think she understands the intellectual side of it very well that they realize that their advantage in organization is that they're in place when these crises hit so that they can take advantage of the exception to the rule. And let me give you just one example of what I mean by the exception. Um, You know, during the crisis, it was a question, what would happen to these large banks? Would, for example, the Federal Reserve actually follow the law? (laughs) And what the Federal Reserve decided is, no, it's a crisis. We don't need to follow the law. So we can save you know, the big big banks that we can save, AIG or so forth, even though technically it's against the law. That's what neoliberals understand that the left doesn't understand. Wow. Uh, you write, nothing substantial has been altered in the infrastructure of the global financial crisis from uh, its state before the crisis. Twelve uh, Government reforms have proven sub- superficial at best in both Europe and the United States. This week uh, we post... Um, the nine circles of hell, the nine most hellish news stories we can find every day on Twitter. And this week, a couple of them that we posted were that, uh, let's see, on, uh, IMF chief says, uh, since crash behavior, the financial sector has not changed fundamentally. And the Bank of England head said capitalism is at risk of destroying itself. So you're saying it. The Bank of England is saying it. The IMF is saying it. Is Wall Street trumping everyone? Is it the U.S. still in charge driving the Titanic and for some reason we're not budging? I think part of this is due to the fact that the the original neoliberal precept, and by the way, this is actually in Milton Friedman's story of the Great Depression in the 1930s, is that the way to save the system is basically not let any of the largest uh, uh, financial units fail. Okay, And I think many of the people who had neoliberal backgrounds in many of the central banks felt that way, too, in the, in the crisis. But, of course, what that says is that basically you're just going to reinforce all of the bad tendencies that were already present. In the, right? You're going to make 
You're going to make the, the financial sector more concentrated. You're going to make it so that they even do crazier financial things because they feel like they're always going to be saved, right? Right. So forth. So, I mean, there's no, you know, obviously this didn't really fix anything. But that's why, um, in a sense, this is, you know, we have to understand neoliberalism. It's because they don't feel threatened by the fact that stuff just keeps getting worse. As long as they can convince people that you keep doing the same kind of things, you know, these sort of, you know, more markets to fix markets, right, sort of thing, right. uh, to, to, to deal with the fact that it's obviously getting more unstable. Did we choose neoliberalism or were we tricked into it? No, 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 one, <laughs> no one's tricked into stuff, okay? It's that intellectual uh, movements take time, they need recruits, they need funding. They need, you know, they need organization. Okay, and uh, partly what I do as a historian is I document those kind of organizational funding and so forth moves. Mm-hmm. And for uh, these these uh, various movements to become well placed to define what is the problem, you know, what can we do, so forth and so on. See, I think there's a there's a real problem. I think here's another problem on the left, and then I'll stop saying that because it gets boring. <laughs> Um, the, the, another problem on the left is they sort of think, well, it's either stuff just kind of happens spontaneously or it's a conspiracy theory, right? Right. They don't believe in the in-between, which is where most of the world is, which is there, there are these, you know, really, uh, deep-rooted historical projects that keep going and they, you know, these are people who are both intellectuals and talk to each other and argue things out and people who have political arms who exist to do things and put, put into play these various uh, uh, ideas that have been argued out. And, you know, here's just one example, and then I'll stop. Uh, think of Jim DeMint. Jim DeMint was a senator. He gave up his seat in the U.S. Senate so that he could become head of heritage and heritage action. Heritage action is one of these existing structures that exist to take neoliberal ideas and make sure they get pumped into the Republican Party and into, uh, you know, discourse generally in the society so that people will think that, you know, neoliberal ideas are solutions to neoliberal problems. And even Jim DeMint sees that it's better to be head of that than it is to be in the Senate. I mean, see... That's not conspiracy. Right, right. You see what I mean? Will, I'm going to ask you a super vague question, uh, and I'm sure that you can figure out some good answer to this. Will neoliberalism destroy the United States of America? Well, obviously, the reason I take such a critical position is because I think that this really is an untenable structure, ultimately. That it doesn't, from from my point of view, remember, not their point of view, from my point of view, it doesn't make sense that I don't, I personally am offended by the idea that the marketplace uh, of ideas decides what is truth, okay? But we have to have a counter story as to, you know, how truth is going to be decided, what are, what are markets, what do they do, what's their relationship to information, and mm-hmm. so forth, okay? So uh, I don't think we could ever make a case. I mean, I, in my gut, of course, I feel like this is, you know, this is headed for disaster, but there has to be a coherent intellectual story behind it. And that's what I think is missing. 
One last question. We are speaking with uh, Philip Murawski. He is the author of Never Let a Serious Crisis Go to Waste, How Neoliberalism Survived the Financial Meltdown. You go to our website. You click on the words Verso Books that are right by there. You click on the name of the title. There's a, there's a link right there. It takes you directly to the publisher's website where you can purchase the book from them. Philip is a historian and philosopher of economic thought at the University of Notre Dame, Indiana, author of 2002's Machine Dreams, Economics Becomes a Cyborg Science, and 1999's More Heat Than Light, Economics as Social Physics, Physics as Nature's Economics. He also appeared in the amazing documentary by Adam Curtis, the BBC documentary The Trap. Make sure you check that out as well. One last question for you, Philip, and it is our question from hell, the question we hate to ask you might hate to answer our audience is going to hate the response we do this with each and every one of our guests Philip so it seems to me after reading your book that the real culture war victor is neoliberalism that the real culture war was for neoliberalism what does it say about neoliberalism what does it say about the right what does it say about the left what does it say about the culture war which is i guess is where all this comes together when the left is focusing on gay marriage gun rights legalizing marijuana while this piece of culture that seeps down into every aspect of our society even leading to people as you point out ezra klein making many of the assumptions uh, that the neoliberals make while trying to fight against neoliberalism. What does the fact that the culture that this seems to be the ignored culture war reveal to us about the left? Well, as a historian, let me answer historically. I think back in the 1930s and 1940s, it was the people who eventually became the neoliberals who were behind the eight ball, right? That the world had come crashing down and everyone... Uh, had become hostile to what they then perceived as laissez-faire philosophy and so forth and so on, and they were on the outs. And so um, what they did was they didn't decide that they should, you know, go and and do these kind of piecemeal little, you know, this political uh, objective or that political dispute or whatever. They decided that they had to rethink their entire project and in some ways, that's the way to understand the you know Mont Pelerin and the rise of these think tanks and so forth. Is that they thought that you know their the older conservatism. And by the way, this is fascinating. Many of them wrote essays then saying why I am not a conservative. They felt that conservatism itself would have to be rethought from the ground up. Okay, um, I think that very few people today on the left have that kind of patience or imagination. Yeah, I think imagination is what's lacking, and I think that uh, accepting far too many assumptions from the right, don't you think that that is the biggest thing? And they don't even realize that they're accepting those assumptions. Yeah, that's it. Philip, again, that's why this is hell. This was an amazing book. Uh, A lot of it went over my head because you start talking about philosophers that I wasn't that great in my philosophy classes. But, boy, when I figure out what you're talking about in there, it was really really depressing and it seems like we're trapped and i'm hoping that we can figure out a way out. <laughs> well, i must be talking to the right people though. yeah there you go exactly <laughs> philip thank you so much for being on the air i guess thank you for being on the air sure. uh, we're having a meet and greet immediately following our show and so now yet again i have another reason to drink and for that i thank you philip thanks for being on the show with us this morning have a drink for me thank you chuck talked with philip morowski in 2014 
Next up, we're going to hear from Keller Easterling. We've talked about Podemos with parliamentary candidate Jesus Castillo and how they hope to challenge power in Spain. We've discussed the way Syriza will challenge power in the Eurozone now that they've taken power in Greece. In December, Loretta Napoleone told us how the Islamic State is a challenge to power and the modern state. Next week, we'll speak with Dilar Dirick about the anti-capitalist, anti-state democratic autonomous zones in Rojova in Syria. There's yet another challenge to power in extra-statecraft, where state, non-state, military, market, and non-market actors create a space outside national laws that often leads to abuses of all kinds, and it's spreading around the world. Here to explain what the challenge to power is that statecraft is, author of Extra-Statecraft, The Power of infrastructure space keller easterling i'm probably going to stumble over that over and over again because i'm over caffeinated and i've been awake for several hours uh (laughs) keller i really appreciate you being on the show with us today uh can you add to my little very simple definition of what extra statecraft is that is state non-state military market and non-market actors creating a space outside national uh, laws that often leads to abuses of all kinds can you expand on that could you give people a better definition than that for extra statecraft well i'm an architect and an urbanist so the evidence that i look at is spatial urban evidence and one thing that's clear to me is that some some of the most radical changes in the globalizing world are being written you know, not not even necessarily in the language of law and diplomacy, but, but in the language of architecture and urbanism. And um, what I look at are all the repeatable formulas for um, making spatial products around the world, and now discovering that not just not just spaces, but entire cities have become repeatable formulas, making a kind of matrix space around the world that I've likened to almost like a software or an operating system. But it's that space that um, seems to be kind of secret weapon of some of the most powerful people on earth. Um, and there are, you know, for instance, maybe most most vivid way to describe or most vivid vessel of extra statecraft that I can describe is uh, something like the the free trade zone um, that is you know was at one point a kind of um, duty free uh, place for warehousing um, manufacturing and goods, but is now turned into a paradigm for um, a sort of world city paradigm that's making all the glittering mimics of Dubai and Singapore and Hong Kong all around the world. Um, but in those cities, if we can call them cities, uh, is a sort of, uh, they, they are, they have a special legal status, um, which allows them to be, uh, to, to operate outside of the state, um, with a separate authority. Um, and so it's that, it's those kinds of new partnerships with the state. Not, not a. I'm just not describing a kind of post-national world, but a world in which nations have a new set of sneakier players, sneakier partners. I mean to say, um, uh, and where there's a kind of uh, self-perpetuating formula for generating extra state territory. Uh, um, you know that can avoid. Uh, labor, uh, environmental laws, um, uh, while 
and delivering um, streamlined customs and uh, tax exemptions to uh, the corporate world. And you write how these cities that are being grown, if you will, around the, these global cities that are being grown, these free uh, free trade zones that are being grown, how they are built on computers, they're built in a very you know, sanitized, safe environment. And then instead of it being a city that is growing organically, it is a city that is imposed on its environment. And that made me think about the way in which things are, in, in which physical spaces are imposed on other people. And one of the critiques that we've had on this show recently is, and in the past as well, and a lot of people are against this kind of criticism, that is to say that Sykes-Picot, the treaty that ended World War I, created this cartography around the world of what people might call false boundaries, and all of the conflicts that we see today are due to the boundaries, the borders that were created uh, with a ruler on a desk in London following World War One. How much more, how much impact, when you think about that kind of impact that people say Sykes-Picot has had on our current state of affairs, how much of an impact do you think that these computer-built global cities will have on the future of our world? Because this is yet another thing that is being created in almost a static environment, safe and sanitized away from the actual progress of how something grows organically. Right. Um, well, I I am one of those people who who would see um, not a, would see information not only in in digital platforms and the new kinds of media technologies, but I see information in real space. Um, so, as Gregory Bateson would say, a man, a tree, and an axe as an information system. So, I I see information systems and and consequential information systems in the heavy, bulky stuff of space. Um, and uh, while there may be all kinds of, as you as you say, econometric formulas or other kinds of abstract formulas that generate these spaces, the space itself, there is um, you know kind of violence, uh, productivity, uh, in- information imminent in the arrangements of spaces themselves, um, and it's 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 that that I look to um, and. Uh, try to separate from, let's say, the scripts of of um, of liberalism and so on, of of uh, of, um, of free trade liberalism and so on that are attached to some of these um, some of these formations. So, trying to find um, the ways in which the um, the ways in which the space itself has has consequence. Um, and uh, uh, absolutely, it's, uh, there there is so much violence and discrimination written into, imminent in in the spaces like the free zones we're talking about, and most of the violence is, is of course, to to labor. Um, Right. Uh, you write. Uh, you wrote um, one of these meta infrastructures, as you were just talking about, is the phenomenon of the free zone, a highly contagious and globalized urban form, and a vivid vessel of what I have termed extra statecraft, a 
Portmanteau, meaning both outside of and in addition to statecraft. Extra-statecraft acknowledges the multiple forces, state, non-state, military, market, non-market, have now attained the considerable power and administrative authority necessary to undertake the building of infrastructure. We spoke with Loretta Napoleone, as I was saying during the introduction, about her book, The Islamist Phoenix, and she told us how taking power through terror, as Islamic State has, is a challenge to the notion of a modern nation-state. How much of a challenge is the extra state process, extra state craft? How much of that is a challenge to our notion of the modern nation state, despite it being including state actors? Well, uh, to, the, to, the, to the modern nation state. Um, well, uh, it, it's, it's, very, it's very clear to me um, that... I mean, what I try to kind of make vivid in my work is the ballooning number of extra-state players that are um, that are that are that are really sort of changing the world and um, creating another level of global governance. Um, and they, those kinds of extra-state players, are are passing through, swarming around many of the spaces that, that I look at. They're pulling the strings, they're uh, uh, making decisions. And, and those, those extra-state players, um, you know, are, are certainly global corporations, but there are also all kinds of uh, in, in NGOs and, uh, with uh, varying levels of independence and um, bureaucracy. Um, but making vivid that strata of of extra state players is um is, is hugely important to being able to read the the um uh well the, as, as you say the, the status of this nation state but um in in my view the that that nation state now can have um you know it, it can still proclaim uh all of its old principles about being a nation, but it now has, as I was saying before, a number of other partners in which it can double itself. It, it has a new set of pirates. It has a new set of doppelgangers. It has a new set of shadow agents that can do, uh, that can uh, work on, on behalf of the nation in, in the, in, in the, in the global uh, market. Um, so there, it's that it's that doubling of the nation that seems to me in, uh, um, a new phenomenon. Again, outside of and in addition to the state, uh, in some cases strengthening uh, a state that uh, it's not like the old nation state, but is it? But is a, is a is a different? In some cases, more insidious. In some cases. Uh, sort of mongrel, uh, and therefore maybe even stronger, uh, harder, harder to track uh, that nation um, or the activities of that nation harder to track. You know, that was the word that kept going through my head when I was reading your book is insidious. I could not. That just kept going through my head. I'm like, I'm going to have to use that word 52 times when I'm interviewing Keller Easterling about her book, Extra Statecraft. You write the world has dominant software for making urban space. The free zone, the formula that generates Shenzhen's, as in China and Dubai's all around the world. Some version of the zone is found in King Abdullah Economic City in Saudi Arabia, New Songdo City in South Korea. 
Cyber Jaya in Malaysia, HITEC, High Tech City in Hyderabad, and everywhere in between, operating under authorities independent from the domestic laws of its host country, the zone typically provides premium utilities and a set of incentives, tax exemptions, foreign ownership of property, streamlined customs, cheap labor and deregulation of labor or environmental laws to entice business. The world has become addicted to incentivized urbanism, and it is the site of headquartering and sheltering for most global power players. So contagious is the spatial technology that every country in the world wants its own free zone skyline. Well, if every country wants this free zone skyline, then it must be really good for economies. Is a free trade zone a good thing for the local or national economy that is hosting it? Well, this is the, this is the strange paradox. Um, in, the, in the mid-20th century, well, the, the United States developed something called a foreign trade zone in the um, in the 30s, um, and there were a handful of these. They were mostly just kind of for manufacturing and uh, custom-free trade. Um, but in in after the war, UNIDO um, sponsored something called an export processing zone, which what which sort of in the flush of Pax Americana was going to be um, something that would help developing countries, you know, jumpstart the economy of developing countries and and help it to uh, enter the, the, the global marketplace. Um, pretty soon, um, the countries that were adopting this export processing zone saw that it was that it wasn't really uh, delivering on its economic process promises and was instead de- delivering up their uh, their own national populations for certain forms of labor abuse. So, so many of them tried to upgrade, you know, make sort of IT campuses and science cities and so on that would have more of a technology transfer or some kind of benefit into their um, into the host country. But but um, you know, by by sort of the 70s 80s, uh, the kind of Washington consensus consultancies. Uh, had like the like uh, the the World Bank had already decided this this is a suboptimal way to to direct foreign investment into into a foreign country. It would be you know they they really decided it would be better just to invest directly into infrastructures rather than to provide these special uh, autonomous uh, um, uh, incentivized zones. Um, but by that time, um, you know, as, as as you were just reading, you know, the, the world had kind of become addicted to these incentives and 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 uh, uh, tax um, tax breaks and so on. Uh, and also, uh, uh, China adopted the idea, some variant of the zone, a special economic zone, and and made in some cases a, a zone category. Unto itself, uh, and you know, has more zones than really anyone in the world. Or, or Chinese zones employ a huge number of, of, of the largest number of, of, of uh, um, zone um, uh, workers in the world. Um, so, in some ways, it, it it there was no way of pulling back. Um, but 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 not only are these uh, are these zones still sites of Pretty grisly labor abuse, but they still fail to deliver on the economic promises that uh, were made. Right, labor abuse, environmental abuse, 
doesn't really work out to the promises that they'd made, as you were just saying. So I don't understand why they're still pursued. And you said that the incentives for like, you know, tax breaks and that kind of thing make it so they continue. But if it, it it seems to me that what free trade zones then are doing are benefiting somebody who has the power to make certain that they spread. Who benefits from free trade zones if when you look at it overall, they're not a good thing to help out in a local economy? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a good question, and um, um, and I have a strange kind of there's a strange kind of hope in the answer to this, somewhere somewhere deep inside of the answer, but, <laughs> okay. um, it, because it, because it, it's many countries have adopted this form. Uh, many countries, you you read some of the names of them, have have not only adopted this form but call their new zone a city. Um, even though it's kind of like the, the furthest thing from what we might think of as, you know, urbanity with all of its consequences and, and contradictions and so on. Um, but the presence of a zone, having a zone, has become a source of pride, a kind of uh, aspirational signal. Every country, you know, wants a kind of expensive mirror tiled glittering skyline um, at, at any cost. Um, and so it's not really a hard-boiled, rational economic formula. It's it's the way the world really works, which is, you know, based on all kinds of irrational desires. Um, I will say too, though, that it's you know when when a country has you know forty percent unemployment, say a country like Kenya um, has forty percent unemployment. And there are all kinds of consultants whispering in the ears of the people who govern that country, whether they're, you know, that, that, the, that the thing they need to do to relieve that unemployment is, is to get, a, you know, um, some kind of uh, um, some kind of zone in which, in kind of greenfield zone in which they can attract business and um, have outsourcing businesses and, and so on. It's very hard for countries to say, no, 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 we'll turn our backs on that possibility of employment. Um, I mean, that that's in some ways why many of them do it. And, it, and in other ways, it's it's because it is, it is a global norm now. It is a global habit um, and, uh, and, yeah, and, and, and a global addiction. It's one that's hard to change. Um, do city, can cities... Can municipalities or any type of uh, go- small, smaller government, can they embrace some of the extra state craft of free trade zones within their city? Because it seems to me that free trade zones don't just exist in a vacuum on the shore in Dubai, separated from everybody else, that free trade zones actually occur within cities as well. So should we, you know, uh, should people who are listening right now, should they be concerned that their hometown could turn into one of these free trade zones or that a part of their hometown could turn into one of these free trade zones? Well, we don't, there are things like, like, like zones in the United States, of course, um, um, uh, and there are um, you know kinds of tax holidays and tax incentives which are in some uh, cities uh, in in the United States. 
giving away uh, they're giving away the resources of the city without um, getting in return sufficient revenues or or some kind of advantage, whether it's technology transfer or employment or something else. It's it's, it's absolutely the case that um, that there are um, you know that there, there are municipalities that are that are they're giving away their assets and not getting enough in return. Um, and in the in the global scene, um, what you suggest is something that I, that I that I am now you know trying to to propose, and it's kind of a it's kind of a simple idea, um, but uh, that 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 many existing cities, rather than building an exurban enclave, let's Quito, Nairobi, uh, um, Guadalajara, name you can name hundreds of them, rather than building a sort of greenfield of completely new, newly minted exurban enclave, what about um, delivering some selected uh, incentives to uh, locate business in existing cities? Um, locate them in Nairobi or Quito or, or, or Guadalajara, um, but but in return for those incentives, place those incentives in some kind of counterbalancing interplay with 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 what that city needs. Nairobi needs transit, for instance. So so that, that to make a better bargain, to make a better exchange between an incentive and an investment in transit, an investment in transit that, by the way would deliver workers to those new businesses in in much better ways than than they than they are currently served by by a by a new um, ex urban enclave surrounded by bad infrastructure. Um, um, so so you know the very thing you're talking about um, trying to deliver incentives to cities but but make a better but leverage better advantages from them is 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 one of the things that one's trying to think about to to wean the world off that addiction and and more importantly to return those workplaces to the rule of law um to return them back to the 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 the, the governing oversight of of the of that city. Uh, we are speaking with Keller Easterling. She is the author of Extra Statecraft, The Power of Infrastructure Space. She is an award-winning writer, architect, and professor at the Yale School of Architecture. Her writing and design work was included in the 2014 <clears throat> Venice Biennale. She is author of Organization Space, Landscapes, Highways, and Houses in America, which was named Archinect's Best book of 2005. Keller is the author of 2001's Enduring Innocence, Global Architecture, and Political Masquerades as well. So is this kind of global city that you're discussing, is this the global plan for Earth 2.0 when it comes to the IMF? Is this the new a new kind of colonialism? Um... um. It's it's interesting that you use that word. Um, and I was just reading. Um, uh, I, you can look to look at land deals, um, and I was just reading Saskia Sassen's really wonderful book called Expulsions, where she's used, looking at uh, some of the new data about uh, land exchanges around the world. Um, 
And there really has been an enormous amount of land purchased by the the, the, the wealthiest countries in the world um, and purchased largely in the global south. And many, a lot of those land deals have to do with these kinds of of, of autonomous zones. So, in in some ways, you you could you know you could see it that way. Um, although, you know, it's not just we typically think of, of a kind of colonialism as as something directed by by a nation, but in this case, it's, it's a whole a swarm of many different kinds of state and non-state actors that are making those purchases, um, making those deals, and uh, colonizing, if you will, um, those new networks of space around the world. Um, I'm glad you brought up Saskia's book. We had her on the show last year to talk about expulsions, and people can go back in our archives and listen to our interview with Saskia. Her work is always fantastic. She's been coming on the show for about 10 years, and yeah, Expulsions is a really great book, and people should check it out. Uh, You write, a host country may have strict laws regulating labor, environment, sanitation, health, and safety or human rights. It may be a signatory to global compacts regarding human rights or international labor organization compacts regarding the treatment of workers, yet the free trade zone might have the power to grant exemptions from such laws and compacts and zone status makes any law difficult to enforce. So to what degree then are things like, let's say, the World Trade Organization, to what degree is that an expression of global extra statecraft? Um, well, well, I mean, it's, they're, they're one, they are one of those, one of those extra state players. And, um, when it comes to the labor that, uh, that, that works in zones, you know, the, the World Trade Organization seems seems still unable to pass. You know, they have all kinds of standards for all kinds of things, but they see, still seem unable to uh, to uh, create any kind of standard that has to do with with global labor. Um, this is the this is the kind of the remarkable thing. I have looked at you know these networks of cities, and what's so amazing is that that many different kinds of cultural scripts become contagious within the whole population of zones. So um, a trivial example is, you know, uh, um, a certain a certain kind of building or a, a certain kind of um, light show or fountains or, or um, a skyscraper or resort or something. The minute that one of them does it, then, then that sort of spreads like wildfire through the whole population of zones that everybody has to have. That, um, and this is the kind of beautiful irrationality of the of the situation. And one of the most one recent cultural script that's spread through these zones is the green script. So, um, you know, little by little, there are um, uh, kind of uh, green greenwashing, uh, self congratulatory green. Um, uh, announcements about uh, uh, developments in in many of these zones, um, and again, lots of stuff about uh, beauty and cities, and some of these are all these kinds of scripts that are swirling around. The one script, remarkably, that um, is never uh, contagious is still the, uh, um, the the kind of proper oversight. Uh, and protection of labor. Um, this is really, this, to me, the, the remarkable thing. Uh, 
And it's that that I am trying to, um, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping, and in, 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 this is what I meant about sort of um, hope somewhere deep in the irrationality of right. the story, is that there, you know, that that might become another contagious script. Um, that that might be the way in which um, uh, corporations launder their identity, wh- wh- whatever it takes, for whatever selfish motive. That it that there might be a way to, um, you know, th- through the through the um, re- relocation of zone incentives, um, you know, back maybe back in the the rule of law in the cities in the cities, um, you know, might might make uh, the treatment of labor a, a new contagion. Um, how much? Do, how much do these free trade zones? How much does it add to or exacerbate uh, corruption in the region? It would seem like if you have these areas, these extra state areas that are above the law, that don't have much oversight, that don't have much scrutiny, that have the kind of labor and environmental abuses that you talk about, that they would not only be corrupt within and of themselves, but they would be a port of entry for corruption to spread in the host nation. Have you found any evidence that these free trade zones lead to corruption? Um, well, I mean, I think we, I think we, we strange, it's, it's, uh, it's a kind of corruption that's really stabilized. <laughs> you know, that's really, it's like legal, legalized uh, forms of abuse <laughs> and, it, and pretty, you know, pr- pretty, pretty stable, pretty, pretty, uh, even even bureaucratic, um, uh, bureaucratically administered forms of corruption and abuse. Um, I mean, the the, the Rana Plaza collapse of, uh, um, of of factories of the factory that was one of the the worst um, industrial that was the worst industrial um, uh, disaster in the world. Uh, that that um, is a perfect example. Um, where uh, the whole zone mentality does, in a way, sponsor that kind of race to the bottom thinking, um, where each each zone is trying to underbid the next one, provide the each each the next poorest country trying to provide the 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 rock bottom lowest labor cost, and and you know then managers of that factory when. You know, when when faced with uh, quotas and uh, uh, and competition, cut corners. Um, they they cut corners on the ways in which the building is constructed and on the safety uh, uh, features in the buildings. And and then then there's a horrific uh, event. You also write about. I want to make sure that people understand. You also write about other places where extra state craft takes place. There are listeners who are tuned in right now who will want to read your section on broadband because there are different areas in which extra uh, state craft uh, deploys itself, and people will be very interested in how extra state craft uh, happens within the in the broadband industry. But I wanted to mention regulations because this really fascinated me. Apparently, there are regulations for 
everything, and they're outside of our control. I had a whole list of them here. Uh, it even comes down to uh, the thickness of credit cards, dashboard pictograms, computer protocols. Here you go. Uh, yet another field of infrastructure space at once more immaterial and more ubiquitous is able to contact any kind of infrastructure uh, space anywhere in the world. If law is the currency of governments, standards are the currency of international organizations and multinational enterprises like the International Organization of Standardization is an extra state parliament of this uh, global standard-making activity, a private non-governmental organization convening both private companies and national representatives. ISO oversees global technical standards for everything from credit card thickness to dashboard pictograms, computer protocols, and the pitch of screw threads, enhancing the influence of a raft of global organizations, the International Telecommunications Union, the International Electrotechnical Commission, the International Civil uh, Aviation Authority, NATO, the World Bank, IMF, WTO, standards create a soft law of global exchanges. So that's the other thing that really gets me is that not only are there just these free trade zones that exist outside of the law and outside of scrutiny and outside of oversight, not only does that happen within the broadband world, but the actual regulations that define our market are based on these very undemocratic things. So I guess that's the biggest, I guess that's my uh, question for you is how much of a threat to democracy is extra statecraft, whether it's existing within these regulations, whether it's existing within the broadband industry, or whether it's existing within free, free trade zones. Right. The book, the book tries to drop down into three huge fields of evidence and, and tries to, you know, the, 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 free, the free trade network, uh, free trade zone network, the um, broadband urbanism, and then, and then, as you say, into a um, into the, uh, a look at the world of global standard making, um, which is another um, kind of set of rules that's kind of writing the software, writing the code. I mean, I'm using that word metaphorically, right? But sort of writing writing the the code for the for a big global operating system of sorts. Um, so the book tries to drop down into these into these evidentiary fields. And then, it, and then it has alternates with um, some contemplative segments, which talk about how we might um, intervene or, let's say, hack into the operating system. Um, but I saw that I saw this is kind of fascinating um, way into um, this huge number, as I was saying before, kind of a ballooning number of of extra state organizations, extra state players that are making decisions about about the world. Um, and ISO is, um, you know, even regarded as an, by by many as a kind of benign um, institution of of very bureaucratic consensus. We it, it is a kind of a parliament, although it's a private organization, and um, countries send. Sort of parastate representatives to it, um, and for a long time, started in forty, started in forty-seven, and really gathered together a lot of uh, organizations that already existed in many countries for making standards. A lot of those had had originated in the need for making standard munitions around the times of war. Um, but every country kind of had a standard-making organization that, but many countries had standard-making organizations that they could send to this parliament. Um, and and they 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 uh, um, 
spend a, a sort of gigantic bureaucracy that spends a lot of time in technical committees deciding on, as you said, uh, you know, t- tiny little uh, all the t- sort of technical standards that that sync up the world and and allow us to communicate. Um, and you know, your your bike helmet has several ISO numbers on it. Um, uh, and this is seen, you know, by many as an incredibly you know, maybe politically deadening, but but benign consensus um, on on some level. Um, what what's what what I have have been trying to look at is 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 when those um, is is when that kind of uh, bureaucratic rulemaking, in some ways, you know, might uh, raise standards in some places, but in in, in some place, in some cases, it might inoculate against. Um, uh, creating better conditions, um, so a country can um, give itself the kind of uh, um, ISO um, seal of approval and wear the ISO badge. Uh, we're we're complying to ISO standards, um, um, and that might be the way in which it is gets into a country to um, to invest. Um, There's uh, a great researcher Judith Kimmerling who's who's written about the way in which um some uh, some oil companies for instance manage to get into South American countries uh, uh, and invest there uh and in some ways their their sort of seal of approval from um standard making organizations like ISO and others uh kind of launders their identity there or or allows them to uh uh, be, be, be kind of a shield to regulation, to further regulation. So it's kind of um, so. It, so we have to see how we use these things, which have come about through kind of slow bureaucratic processes. But what are they really? And um, they, because they are, uh, you know, controlled by private companies and, and parastate organizations. They aren't necessarily activist in the kinds of standards that they set. For instance, there's a, an ISO standard about environment, but it's not. It doesn't set any emissions um, emission levels. It it decides what. Um, what constitutes a ton of carbon? So, so that you know, you say well, that, that helps us negotiate uh, environmental effects. But they, the these kinds of the ISO in particular stays away from kind of controversial decisions or consequential decisions to um, uh, make a kind of Esperanto of management ease that the world yeah. uh, habitually speaks and uses oh. to congratulate itself. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit of a long answer, and so it's a longer story that you'd have to spend more time to talk about. Yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you mean because, and that makes us lead. Uh, you know, that leads us or uh, leaves us at the point where we have this idea that there is no alternative to the governing system. For instance, just as an example, there is no alternative to austerity, as you point out in your book, uh, the financial quants that are used to determine if a nation is going in the right direction economically is yet another part of, uh, you could say, uh, uh, extra statecraft, but it's another part that doesn't have the scrutiny or oversight that it desperately needs. We've been speaking with 
Keller Easterling. She is author of Extra Statecraft, The Power of Infrastructure Space. Keller, I've got one last question for you. And as it is with all of our guests, it's the question from hell, the question we hate to ask. You might hate to answer. Our audience is going to hate the response. It would seem to me that these free trade zones within the use of, within the use of Extra Statecraft, the free trade zones would seem to be the ultimate neoliberal utopian strategy. We've had people uh, critique neoliberalism on our show over and over and over again. Is this what we see with extra statecraft? Is this an extension of neoliberalism? And do protesters against, against neoliberalism, do they miss their mark by not targeting extra statecraft? Um, I, I think that, that, that you know, many political theorists would regard uh, the free zone as kind of a quintessential artifact of, of, of neoliberalism, you know, w- without question. It, it, it checks all the boxes um, for, for any, um, you know, any profile of what, of, of what people think of as, as, as neoliberal um, politics. Um, but I'll say um, that um, I spend a, a fair amount of time in the book, and maybe the part of the answer that people not, don't want to hear, um, but I spend some time in the book to sort of say, like, how, how good are these labels for us? anymore. Um, liberal, neoliberal, what what about all the different uses of the word liberal? Um, is it is it is it is it that useful for us to stand um uh to stand up and righteously proclaim that this is um this is a quintessential example of the of the neoliberal state? Yet yes it is. It's it is useful to, to make that distinction, to stand up and give it a name. Um, but what I'm working on is not is not necessarily about the the activist techniques that rely on declaration, on righteous declaration. I'm I'm trying to work with spatial variables in an even sneakier way that that doesn't necessarily even identify itself as you know, against the neoliberal um, uh, 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 apparatus. Um, so I'm I'm actually trying to say that that two can play at this game and that um, using sort of leading with spatial variables and not necessarily declaring the um, the politics of those variables um, is a way to bolster those who are trying to fight the neoliberal state but do it in a kind of maybe a, a sneakier way. Keller, it has been a fascinating conversation. People should check out your book, Extra Statecraft. The discussion that you have about the process that uh, wherein uh, Extra Statecraft works within infrastructure and the way that we don't really listen or don't understand the message of the infrastructure around us, that discussion is really fantastic. I really appreciate you being on the show with us this morning. Truly an honor. The best of luck with your book. And it really is fascinating. It's a topic that nobody else is tackling. So I really appreciate you being on the show with us this morning. It's been a great pleasure talking to you. Okay, take care, Keller. Okay, bye. Chuck spoke with Keller Easterling in February of 2015. Next up, Gordon Lafer. Corporations now have more power in the U.S. than our elected government, and corporations have plans for how they want to lead America. Here to tell us what they want and how they plan to get it, 
Labor scholar Gordon Lafer is author of The 1% Solution, How Corporations Are Remaking America, One State at a Time. Welcome to This is Hell, Gordon. Thanks. It's good to be here. Gordon is Associate Professor of the Labor Education and Research Center at the University of Oregon. He is also the author of the award-winning book, The Job Training Charade, charade, whichever you choose. Uh, so why target states? Is it because it takes less resources to get state legislators to support you? Is it cheaper than targeting federal legislators? Why are corporations targeting states and not the federal government? Well, they're doing both, of course, but their power is greatest at the level of the state. And there's a couple reasons for that. One is what you said. Most state legislative races <clears throat> are pretty cheaply bought. You know, for the most part, 50000 bucks or so will swing a state legislative race. Um, also, almost nobody is paying attention. You know, I, I won't ask you, but on average, less than a quarter of Americans can name who their state legislator is. And I don't say that as if, you know, I don't understand why it's so boring to most people. But the result is there's very little counterweight to the power of money in state politics because politicians don't have big name recognition or loyal bases. So money goes a lot further to control politicians and it buys a lot more races. And starting early in the Obama administration for a long time, the federal government was really deadlocked. And so the fight moved to the states. So uh, that's just I, I, why is it that have you I've, I've asked this question to a lot of guests? Why is it that people don't see the power of the state? Why is it that the media doesn't cover state politics as much as it should? Why are we so uninformed about state politics? Uh, you know, I think most people are probably tired at the end of the day and don't have a lot of uh, time for any kind of politics, and they get captivated by the. I don't know, the circus in the White House or something. There's also been a terrible fall-off of reporters who cover state politics. The number of reporters whose, whose beat it is to cover a state house or state legislature is down about 40% in the last decade. But I, I feel like it's understandable why people find it boring, but it turns out the things that people can't bear to pay attention to have a huge impact on our lives. And so how much can get done by targeting only states and not the federal government? And what, uh, what can't get done? Well, you know, this state governments have uh, controlled minimum wage, they control taxes, they control unemployment insurance, they control school funding, they control Medicaid, they control public transportation. Uh, just a tremendous amount of our lives is decided at the state level. Even things that are federally funded, like education, at the state level is decided what happens with that money and where it goes. And so there's a tremendous amount of power. And starting in the 1980s, there were conscious decisions to say a whole lot of things should be removed from the federal government and given to the states. There's also no filibuster in state legislatures, meaning it just takes a simple majority. So it's a lot easier to get laws passed. And what we've had in the last, in the last decade or so is really the nationalization of state politics, where we see the same laws showing up in state after state after state, because they're not really the idea of any elected legislature, but they're coming out of the national headquarters of corporate lobbies. So nationalism of state politics, how much does that undermine the system of federalism, where each and every one of the states was supposed to be a laboratory for democracy and could try doing different things within their states? Does that nationalized state policy undermine, if not end, the process of federalism? But essentially, that idea of states as laboratories of democracies, unfortunately, is dead, really. Um, I mean, not entirely, but for the most part, it's become just a laboratory to see how far the corporate lobbies can get in pushing their agenda. And, that, you know, the most important way that this plays out is through something called the American Legislative, Legislative Exchange Council, or ALEC, which is the main organization that all the corporate lobbies work through at the state level. And it's really remarkable, if I could take a minute to explain it, 
The way ALEC works is about a quarter of all state legislators in the country are members. They pay 50 bucks a year in dues. The rest of the money is paid by these big corporations, hundreds of big, the biggest corporations in the country that we all know. And they meet four times a year and sit in committees that are made up half of elected state legislators and half of corporate lobbyists, and they write bills together. They all have to be approved by the corporate board, and then those bills get introduced in cookie-cutter fashion in state after state around the country. One of the ways that, that people track this in research, actually, is using a kind of software that I'm a professor at University of Oregon. We get given this anti-plagiarism software to make sure students aren't cheating. So when somebody turns in a term paper, you run it through something that checks if the paper exists someplace else before. They use that same software with laws and found all these laws that say, we the people of Illinois, and it turned out to say, we the people of Tennessee and Arizona before that. So Alec estimates that they introduce a 1,000 bills a year and pass 200 into law. And that's working across the 50 states, trying to push out the same things. And then what we see is that the same corporations that are writing the laws are funding these politicians' campaigns, are funding state-level think tanks to support their positions, and are running their own ads on print, broadcast, and digital media to support this. So it's a very well-funded, well-coordinated 50-state campaign to do in the states what they can't do in Congress. And you give a list of the ALEC corporate members. Can To what degree can, when I saw that list, this is the first thing that popped in my head because I know that some activist is going to send me an email saying this. To what degree can we boycott ALEC corporate members into ending ALEC? It's a very good question. And first of all, if any listener wants to look at it, the, the best website that has information on this is called alecexposed.org, A-L-E-C exposed.org that lists all the companies and tracks all the laws and will say who are the ALEC-affiliated legislators in, in Illinois or in any other state. There have been uh, companies that have pulled out of ALEC after a few things. Well, because of boycotts or boycott fears, the first was the killing of Trayvon Martin, which um, followed the Stand Your Ground law that ALEC lobbied for on behalf of the gun industry. There are companies that pulled out because of uh, climate change, because of ALEC's position on climate change. But the problem is that the way that election laws work right now, it's extremely easy for companies to pull out officially and continue to give money. There's so many secret channels. So, for instance, a company can say, we're resigning from ALEC, but we remain a member of the Chamber of Commerce, and the Chamber of Commerce is a member of ALEC. So I assume that those companies are still giving money and still putting forth their agenda. They're resigning officially in order to protect themselves against potential boycotts. So I don't don't think we can... We can beat it that way. I think people have to beat it by organizing on a different program and by exposing who it is that's doing this. You write that in January 2015, Tennessee's Republican governor, Bill Haslam, unveiled a proposal to expand his state's Medicaid program to provide health insurance to 200,000 low-income residents. Haslam was at the peak of his power. He had just won re-election with 70% of the vote and had been named to head the Republican Governors Association. Haslam insisted that his plan was not Obamacare. Indeed, he had gained concessions from the Obama administration, allowing him to write conservative requirements into the program. His Republican colleagues, who controlled both houses of the legislature, supported his proposal based partly on a polling showing widespread voter approval. Popular governor promoting a popular policy, But as you point out, none of this was enough. And it wasn't enough because of corporate interference, if you will, in the election. What does it say about the state of U.S. democracy when popular legislation supported by a popular politician can be completely undermined by the efforts of corporations? 
I think the first thing it says is that we have to start getting in the practice of looking behind the individuals, behind the politicians and behind the parties even, to see who's really pulling the strings and who are the most powerful actors here. And, you know, there's there's no one party that controls all of politics. I don't want to be conspiracy theorist about it. But the corporate lobbies are the biggest and most powerful actors in the country. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce, for instance, its political budget, its advocacy and lobbying budget, became bigger than either the National Democratic or Republican parties. So people look at politics and they think about the individuals who we see. They think about President Trump. They think about whoever. But we really need to look behind those people and see who is really making things happen, who is really determining what comes into law. And the case that you cited was so dramatic because everything that was lined up in the Republican Party and with popular support got defeated in that case because of the Koch brothers-funded Americans for Prosperity. So we're at a point now where in many cases the corporate organizations are actually more powerful than political parties and and also more powerful than elected politicians. There are a number of situations where where this is not strictly a partisan issue where pro-labor or or progressive or moderate republicans were taken into back rooms with big money donors and told either you do what the corporate lobbies want or this will be your last term in office because we'll pull our money from you and we'll give it to your opponent in the primary and we'll beat you because that's a credible threat. So that's the number one thing is I think we need to be looking in the right place and not be distracted by a lot of the, the drama and the, the, the kind of clickbait version of politics. You write that America's most powerful corporate lobbies are working to remake the country's economy in ways that will affect all Americans profoundly and yet are largely invisible to most of us. Understanding these forces' legislative agenda is essential in comp- to comprehending America's current political and economic trajectory. This agenda has been enacted in state legislatures rather than the U.S. Congress. So how clandestine, how much is this process a publicly known secret. To you, what explains why these processes, as you write, remain invisible to us? It was entirely secret until around 2010 when there was a whistleblower who dumped thousands and thousands of documents into the public domain. And that's what's all at that website I mentioned, alecexposed.org. Um, so now we know a lot. And what the, what the book I wrote is based on tracking, the book tracks all bills passed with the backing of these big corporate lobbies in all 50 states across a wide range of issues to do with the economy and labor and public services and jobs um, in the years since Citizens United, since 2011. So we can see what they're doing in specific places, but we can also see what the big picture looks like when it comes together. I keep being surprised because it's not a secret. It's not censored. You can find all the information, but very few people know about it. It's not discussed enough in the mainstream news. Maybe people find it hard to believe or find it depressing to believe, but it's all out there, and it's important to it's important to know what's really going on. What would you say to someone who argues that this has always been going on, that there has always been a fight between corporations and government over power in the U.S.? How are today's corporations fighting the government any more than they were, say, before 2010 or before 2000? Uh, well, I think we're you know we're in a different stage than we were you know decades ago. Some of this is because the country has grown so much more economically unequal, where the the 1% or people at the top have gotten very, very rich, and the majority of Americans have found it harder and harder to make ends meet. When we've had legal decisions, most importantly the Citizens United case in front of the Supreme Court in 2010, which said corporations can spend unlimited amounts of money on politics for the first time, made it possible for that growing economic inequality to be directly translated into growing political inequality. 
So you're right, there was always this tension, and corporations were always a dominant player in politics, but that got much, much more skewed since 2011, since the, since the Supreme Court decision. So we now, have, we now have much greater power. We're also in a different stage in um, the advancement of globalization. So we now have, you know, it, it was 1953, I think, when the president of GM said in the Senate that what's good for GM is good for America. And I don't know if that was ever exactly true, but it was closer to true when GM cars were made by American workers and bought by American consumers. Now GM, most of its employees are overseas, and 80, I think two-thirds of the cars it sells are overseas. And they're not alone in that. There's a lot of companies like that. So we're in a unique and weird situation where it is illegal for a foreign corporation to spend money on an American political campaign, but a legally American corporation, even if 80% of its earnings are overseas, can spend unlimited amounts of money. So when you look at the membership of ALEC, or the Chamber of Commerce, you see a lot of companies that are among the most powerful players in American politics, but whose interests are increasingly separate from the interests of the American people or the American society. People say, well, why don't they... Why are they cutting education funding? Because don't they need Americans to be well-educated, to, you know, both to be their workers and to buy their products? And the answer is kind of, but less than ever before. And I'll, I'll say this, I, I know you're in Chicago, and I was talking with somebody who was working on plant, you know, fighting plant closings in the Midwest in the 1980s, who said they used to have early warning systems. So how could, what's an early warning signal that your company might be going to leave? And one of those was when they stopped paying their taxes and appealed their tax bills because the companies felt like, well, we don't care what happens to the streets or the county health department or the school systems in Michigan or Indiana because we're leaving. And he said, you know, what it looks like now what these companies are doing is similar to the country as a whole as what their attitude was to the upper Midwest in the 1980s. And and that it does look like that. It's a kind of scary thing to contemplate. How much then has globalization made the U.S. and the U.S. worker not as important to corporations' bottom lines? It, much more, unfortunately. And obviously, this is not about, you know, do you want to put up walls around the country? Do you want to, you know, are you an isolationist? The question is, what are the terms of globalization? And right now, the terms of globalization the, uh, through the particular laws and treaties, you know, free trade treaties that have been passed, put American workers in competition with not only the people who are poorest and most desperate around the world, but also the people who have the least democratic rights, with poor, desperate people in countries where they don't have the right to organize unions, they don't have the right to elect their people who make their laws, they don't have the right to write a letter to the editor in protest. And that's what's happening in globalization. And that has had a huge impact. You also mentioned the impact of financialization. You write these interests have also been influenced by the dramatic growth of the financial sector relative to the economy as a whole, a process that has fundamentally reshaped corporate priorities. A series of legal and regulatory changes beginning in the 1970s gradually allowed pension funds to invest in stocks and higher-risk financial instruments, permitted savings and loans, commercial banks, insurance companies, and investment banks to merge their operations and created a large market of unregulated investment instruments. Together, these changes Changes triggered a wave of hostile takeovers and leveraged buyouts and led nearly all publicly traded companies to reorient their operations in order to maximize, maximize short-term return to shareholders. While we do hear even Trump supporters like the left before them complaining about globalization, to you, why didn't we and why don't we ever hear Trump or Trump supporters voicing opposition to financialization if it has as had a negative impact on workers like globalization has had? 
Well, you know, I would say, first of all, I don't think this is a strictly partisan issue. I think there are a lot of people on the on the right. I mean, obviously, it's a big country, but I think there's a lot of people, as far as I know, who voted for Trump who would like to see Wall Street much, much more strongly reined in and regulated. That's not what's happening through the Trump administration, but I think there are people who voted for Trump believing that that's part of what he was going to do. So I don't want to put it all on, you know, Trump supporters or, or, or Clinton supporters or something, but... But let me try to explain a little bit about financialization because it's it's complicated. The first thing is to say that financialization, like globalization, is not like the trees and the rocks. It's not like a thing that exists in nature that we can't do anything about. It's the creation of years and years of lobbying and laws and regulatory changes. In the case of financialization, I mean, it's it's what you said in reading through that passage, which is over a series of decades. Um, it's not just the dominance of Wall Street in the economy, but that non-financial corporations, you know, big corporations got so scared about being taken over by a, by a Wall Street investment bank or hedge fund or something like that, that they reorganized themselves. And the bottom line of how they reorganized themselves is that in the 1960s, of every dollar that a company earned, 60 cents of it, 60%, was plowed back into the company either buying new properties or new equipment or wage increases or training workers or something like that. Now, instead of 60%, it's 10%. And that's because all the rest of the money is going to dividends and share buybacks to try to please the shareholders to prevent hostile takeovers. And the CEOs who run those companies are judged only by what is their impact on the stock price in the short term. It's like nobody's thinking... I'm in the newspaper business. I'm in the car business. I'm in the whatever. I'm here for a couple of years, and I need to make the stock price go up. There was a, um, a interview that Hillary Clinton gave during the interview when she called it. She called this the single quarter economy, and she told the story about talking to the CEO of a company who she said to you know, wouldn't it be in your long term interest if we raise taxes on companies to build the infrastructure and we had better highways and bridges and electrical infrastructure and water infrastructure? And, you know, 15 years from now, wouldn't that be good? And he said, yeah, you're right. That would be in the long-term interest of my company. And 15 years from now, it would help our profits. But a year from now, I'd be out of a job because I didn't let the stock price go up. And so even when it's not in the long-term interest of the companies, the constraints that the decision makers are operating under force them to act in a way that is just about financial maximization and just about short-term profits. And that's different from how it was years ago. How much do you think that accurately reflects the views of the U.S. public, that we don't care about the long term, only the short term? Because tax cuts are still politically popular, and even Trump's tax cuts, which were criticized intensely, attacked vigorously, are now getting better poll numbers with more and more Americans viewing them positively, according to the New York Times this week. So how much does that kind of short-term thinking, how much do you think that accurately reflects the views of the U.S. public? Uh, I think it absolutely does not reflect the views of the public. And, you know, I don't blame people for mis- you know, for not being policy wonks and understanding all the, uh, you know, what really happens behind the, the headlines and the spin that comes out in, in the mass media. But, you know, people vote for politicians for all different kinds of reasons. But when you look on an issue-by-issue basis, there is a very strong bipartisan support for having a more fair economy, a more just economy, and better investment in public services. And a strong majority of both Republicans and Democrats support a significantly higher minimum wage, support a right to paid sick leave for everybody who works, support um, smaller class sizes in schools, support better patient-to-nurse ratios, support regulating CEO salaries on Wall Street. I think part of what the corporate lobbies are doing is they see 
that life has gotten harder in America, that there's a lot of resentment and rage and anxiety, and they're scared about that coming at them, and try and steer it in a lot of different directions. And also at the local level, try to use their power in the state legislature to make it illegal for people in cities to vote to raise their minimum wage or things like that. So we're, we're in a very volatile time, but it is not because the public has been convinced that the corporate agenda makes sense. On an issue-by-issue basis, that agenda is very unpopular. So uh, following up on the illegality of what we can vote for and what we can't vote for, how much in that sense, and I'm probably using this phrase incorrectly, how much do you think that the corporations and their lobbyists are criminalizing democracy? Well, I would say they're, they're, I mean, you could use that word. I feel like they're shrinking the realm of democracy. I mean, you, you know, when you say, I'm not, my PhD is in political science, as a political scientist, you say, how democratic is country X? It's not just, are their elections fair? But it's also, what is the scope of life, of economic life, that people are allowed to have democratic control over? Obviously, if you have perfectly free and fair elections, but all you can vote on is the color of the flag, it doesn't do you very much. So the, the corporate lobbies, because they see the same polls, they know that their positions are unpopular, have been using their power in the state legislature starting in 2011 to pass laws, because in, in almost every state there's a city or a few cities more progressive than the state as a whole, they say it's illegal for any city or county in the state to raise its minimum wage or to create a right to paid sick leave or to create an ability to recover stolen wages or to create something that makes it easier for people to sue over race and sex discrimination or even to say you have a right to a certain amount of rest between shifts. So they're, they are shrinking the realm of things that can be voted on by by the population, by the voters, and trying to put all this in state constitutions and say nobody's allowed to vote on this. And that is, um, on the one hand, is a sign of their fear, a sign of their recognition that what they're doing is very unpopular, but that one of their strategies, inevitably, if you're the richest and most powerful people in the country, and your agenda is to make the country yet more unequal and make life yet harder for the majority of working people, you know it's unpopular. You have to have a strategy for, pre- for preventing uh, populist backlash. And one of their strategies is this, is to just to make it illegal for people to vote on things that are more popular than the corporate agenda. Uh, how much is the corporate agenda not only to, in a sense, uh, undermining democracy, but also to make any way of protesting illegal? Um, there, you know, I know that that is going on. There have been pushes to have to make uh, laws to make it um, harder to protest or to make it easier for organizations engaged in protests to be sued. But it's not one of the things I looked at in detail, so I don't want to try to shoot off my mouth on something I don't really know about. Uh, damn it, that's what this show is all about. <laughs> uh, Gordon, uh, just getting back to globalization and financialization again, you write that the combination of globalization and financialization has increasingly led American executives to disengage from the fate of the country's people. Every year since 2011, Harvard Biz- Business School has surveyed its alumni among the elite of U.S. business leaders on their views of the American economy. The responses suggest, above all, a divorce between corporate and public interests. These executives are simultaneously optimistic about the ability of American firms to compete in global markets and strongly pessimistic about what awaits American workers. To what degree is that why the the Dow Jones hits record highs? And if so, how disconnected, how much more disconnected is the Dow Jones from the economic standing of the American worker than it was in the past? How misleading is the Dow Jones as an indicator of the economy's success? 
I think it's quite misleading. I mean, and it's really striking that generally, if you only hear one number about the economy while listening to the day's news, that's the number you hear. How did the stock market do? 60% of Americans own no stock, not a single share of stock. Um, but also, as you said, right, the stock prices can go up because those companies are not, they're operating all over the world and they can go up because they're paying better dividends to the shareholders. Stock prices going up does not correlate to the people who, who are creating the profit doing better. Um, the, you know, what we should have ideally is a statistic that says, you know, wh- however you would say it, if you're a working age adult, what are the chances of getting a job not at which you can be rich, but at which you can be moderately secure. You can be secure in your house. You can have something that you're not afraid of being poor when you're old. You can have health insurance. You can kind of take care of your kids. It's not impossible to create a statistic like that. If we had that reported in the daily news, it would be much more relevant to the lives of the vast majority of Americans, and maybe it would create a little more political pressure for policies that help move that number well, as opposed to saying, well, the stock market's up, so everything is good. How much do you think the corporate agenda is dividing the Republican Party uh, for their own bottom line? Well, you know, every every uh, both of the political parties have a division between the interests of their donor class and the interests of their base voters. And the division plays out differently between, you know, in the Democrats than it does in the Republicans. For the Republicans, for a long time, the corporate lobby's idea was, okay, the base will be organized around anti-abortion, anti-marriage equality, anti-immigrant which the corporations don't really care one way or the other about, and the corporations will get their tax cuts and their stuff, which the base doesn't really care about. After the the two elections of President Obama, the National Republican Party and most of the big corporate lobbies concluded that 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 was a losing strategy. What they tried to do in the Tea Party, and the Tea Party was many different things to many different people, but to the corporate funders of the Tea Party, the Tea Party was an experiment at trying to create a base that was energized just around anti-tax and anti-government stuff. And if you looked at its, at its uh, platform, it had no social issues on it whatsoever. And that kind of worked for a couple of years and then fizzled out, and then Trump blew it up by running a campaign that was much further to the right on social issues and rhetorically, at least, to the left on economic issues. So the Republicans are also, you know, from the corporate lobby's point of view, playing with the Trump administration is like playing with fire. He's not who they wanted, but they're able to get um, a lot of what they want. And I think this, you know, this also is telling when we look at all the everyday drama and outrageousness and petitions and all that kind of stuff with the, and the Trump administration, when you look at what has actually been done, most of what's been done is the corporate agenda. The one big legislative thing they got done was this enormous tax cut tilted towards the rich and corporations. And, and then, you know, uh, killing off the EPA, doing away with regulations that are in a way that benefits the oil industry, loosening regulations on Wall Street. Most of what has actually happened behind all the drama is the corporate agenda. So there is a dance going on between those two parts of the, of the Republican Party trying to figure out, can they each get enough of what they want to, to keep working together? And so far, it seems like yes, but it's a volatile dance. You've said that this corporate agenda and the amount of resources they have was significantly increased by Citizens United. How much do you think the voting public has realized the enormous impact of Citizens United on the U.S. democracy? And two, how much has Citizens United undermined democracy in the U.S.? Uh, I think it's been it's been terrible for democracy, and a majority of the public thinks that. I mean, a majority of the public thinks that that decision should be overturned, that corporations are not persons and shouldn't have free speech rights as corporations. But I don't think people know exactly how 
how dramatic it's been. Even at the state level, there were 22 states in 2010 that had state regulations and limits on how much corporations could spend in politics, and all of those were automatically canceled by the Supreme Court decision as well. And, you know, the legally what Citizens United says is that both corporations and unions can spend unlimited sums on politics. But there was no union sitting around with a big pile of cash waiting for legal permission to put it into politics, but corporations were. And, you know, although, you know, so they can both legally do it, but the the resource imbalance is so huge. If you look at just the Fortune 500 corporations, just the 500 biggest corporations, their annual revenue is 350 times bigger than all of the dues collected by all of the unions in America. So to say, you know, it's like saying both rich and poor people have the right to sleep under bridges. They both have the right, but what's really happened is hugely exacerbated the already existing inequality and put the corporate lobbies in a much more powerful position. And that's both, that's at the federal level, but it's even more dramatic at the state level. Then what explains why workers in the U.S. aren't rushing to the polls to vote against every person who supported Citizens United, who supports policies that are seemingly, if not literally, being written by corporations? Or do they not hold politicians responsible as much as they hold maybe the law? Well, I think that, you know, where, you, where I would see hopeful signs, because it's, you know, I've, the kind of research that I've done and write this book, it just gets very bleak and depressing. But the place where I think is hopeful is that when people have a chance to vote on an issue by basis, as opposed to for an individual or for a party, like I said, there's a lot of support for a more progressive agenda. That happens either when there are ballot initiatives, which are not legal in every state, but in many states you can vote on a particular law at the state level or at the local level, or when campaigns for office get defined as issues. So if we say, okay, we're you know voting for the school board, instead of saying I'm voting for so-and-so because they're nice, say I'm voting for everybody who supports these three things and kind of convert candidate races into issue races. I think when, the, when politics is focused on candidates and parties, it's hard. It's hardly like the Democrats are God's gift to working people and people who think, oh, the Democrats are a Wall Street party. There's a lot of truth to that. So there's not a you know, there's not, I don't think there's not like a shining example. I mean, I was a, I personally was a Sanders supporter, but, you know, there's a, it's hard to get excited about most people running for for office. So I don't, but I don't think that that means that, um, that the majority of the people don't care about these issues or that if they had a chance to vote on the issues that they would support what's being done. I think people vote for candidates for all kinds of reasons. And then those people go off and do what the money people tell them to do. How much is inequality at historic levels because corporations are either misleading the public into supporting policies that in the end are against voters' self-interest but are well within the self-interest of corporations? And to what degree is inequality at historic levels because corporations are just imposing their will upon state legislatures? Um, both of those things are very important and very big contributors. You know, it's, a, it, it's a very hard to say exactly what percentage is contributed by what. But we're at a crisis of inequality, and we're at a crisis of, of people's inability to support their families at a decent standard of living. And again, I don't mean rich, just kind of just to be secure has gotten beyond the reach of more and more people. I mean, for men, for instance, um, 60% of men now uh, have seen their real wages go down, which means there's about 70 million American men working for less than the equivalent of what their fathers and grandfathers made. And families as a whole, two-parent families, are doing better. Their wages are just flat over the last 40 years, but that's because women are working so many more hours. The average two-parent family now works the equivalent of seven full weeks of extra work compared to what the similar family would have done in the 1970s. 
So there's a huge crisis. And people think, oh, it's because of technology. or And it's partly, you know, there's more than one cause. But when you look at what the corporate lobbies are doing, they are doing everything possible to make it harder for regular working families to make a living and basically to take more of the wealth and, and income and power in the economy into their own hands. In, cor- in things that people don't think of, lowering the minimum wage, lowering the wage for waiters and waitresses, cutting unemployment insurance, cutting Medicaid, cutting the earned income tax credit, cutting public housing, cutting public transportation, cutting libraries, which for many poor people is the only place they have access to the internet. At every turn, you know, making it easier for employers to say, you're not an employee, you're an independent contractor, and therefore you don't have certain kinds of rights. At every turn, because they're so well-funded, they can afford to put money and resources into little nooks and crannies of economic legislation that most people don't pay attention to. But at every turn, we have a 50-state well-funded campaign to try to remake the economy in a way that makes the vast majority of Americans worse off and makes the economy more unequal. So I can't say exactly what percentage of the crisis of inequality is caused by that, but it's very large. These are the most powerful political actors in the country. But inequality seems to be working for the wealthiest. How sustainable is the inequality that's making the enormously rich even more enormously wealthy while the rest of us see decades of stagnating wages leading to us actually making less while producing more? How much longer can this trajectory toward greater and greater inequality continue? So I don't know, but they're worried about it, too. And this is in some ways, you know, the book is called The 1% Solution. And in some ways, what that means is, from the point of view of the economic elite, the political problem for them is, how do we make things yet more unequal? How do we pursue a political agenda that's going to make life harder for the majority and not have a backlash? And they're worried about it. You can see quotes from people on Wall Street saying, if we don't, you know, if we don't stop this rising inequality, there's going to be another French Revolution. But when you hear them, you know, the number of them have said that. They see the same things that we say, and maybe even more, because they have a bird's-eye view of the economy. But when you hear people saying something like that, you think the next line out of their mouth is going to be, so I guess we better pay a little more in taxes and let the minimum wage go up and, like, take the edge off the national anxiety by equalizing the economy a little. But it's not. They have plans to leave and to isolate themselves. There is a, in the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland, which is the annual meeting of the big bankers and and uh, finance ministers. There was a, a guy from Wall Street who said, I know people all over the hedge fund industry who are buying private islands with their own planes and have their escape. There are now, for people who can't afford their own islands, I know this sounds like dystopic science fiction, but there are at least three companies selling what they call luxury survival condos in former nuclear missile silos in the, in the uh, plane states, where for $5 million bucks you can buy a little apartment in a silo with 20 other, you know, royal refugee families with a five-year supply of food and, a, I think, a dog park and a pool and supposedly special forces trained guards. And they say, you know, if the economy collapses, if there's social anarchy, this will be your, this will be your safe haven for rich people. So unfortunately, I think they also are worrying about the same question that you said, how much longer can this go on before there's an explosion? They're very worried about it. You know, where human politics is is uh, impossible to predict scientifically. It's like political science is not really a science. So we don't know how long it go on, and we don't know if the anger and resentment and, and fear and rage that builds up from these times ends up exploding in a way to the right or to the left. That's the, that's the key thing that is up for grabs now. 
In your opinion, then, how much is the U.S. already an oligarchy, government controlled by the few for corrupt and selfish purposes? And how much is the U.S. a democracy, government by the people directly or indirectly through elected representatives? To you, does the U.S. represent more a democracy or an oligarchy? Uh, on economic policy, I would say an oligarchy. I think you know there there was a famous study a few years ago by a guy named Marty Gillens, who's a political scientist at Princeton. He looked at at Congress and he compared what does the American people think by by income levels, you know the poorest ten percent, the richest ten percent, blah blah blah, and what do senators actually do in the Congress? And what he found is that in those issues that he looked at, the opinions of the bottom ninety percent of us don't matter. If there's an issue where 90% of the, the poorer 90% of Americans think one thing and the richest 10% think something else, that federal politicians do what the richest 10% think. He said the only time that that changes a little is during presidential election years because so many more people are paying attention. There's pressure on politicians to moderate what they do and take into account more people's opinion. But that when the presidential election year is over, they go back to doing the same thing. So I'm not saying, you know, person by person, everybody is corrupt, but there is. If you look at what is, if you think, well, what government is supposed to be translating the will of the public into law, then it's certainly more oligarchy than democracy. Because on an issue by issue basis, the American public is much more progressive and wants a much more fairer economy, both Republicans and Democrats, among base voters than what we're getting in law. So, to what extent can we vote the oligar- oligarchy out of power? Well, we certainly, you know, in theory we can. It's legal to. And then, you know, people start saying, well, how do we convince everybody to do it? How do we organize everything? That's the key question. I, I think that, you know, where there's a possibility to do it, it's much more fruitful to organize around issues than to say vote for this party or vote for this person or to demand that politicians take a position on certain issues. And we need to find those issues where there, where both, you know, majority of Republican and Democratic voters support a fairer economy and make that the center of a campaign. That That's as best. If, I mean, if I had a better four point plan than that, I would have. I would have rolled it out earlier. That's as best as I have for how do we move forward from here. You also point out how the Tea Party has avoided social conservatism, opposition to gay marriage, opposition to abortion, imposing Christianity on public schools and the like, and instead has focused on conservative economics. And this has been at the uh, behest of the Tea Party's corporate founders. So why avoid social conservatism and how sustainable is the Tea Party as long as it continues to avoid social conservatism? People, you know, people mean different things, and the corporate donors and the rank-and-file activists meant different things by the Tea Party. Um, when it started, the, the big corporate donors, including the Koch brothers, wanted they didn't want to have to be accountable to religious people. They thought that you know, gay marriage and marriage equality had become so widespreadly supported that they couldn't campaign on that. They didn't want to campaign against immigrants because they didn't want to alienate the Latino community as the single biggest um, single rising group of ethnic voters whose political loyalty was not yet cemented. But um, so that was their experiment at the Tea Party. And then, as I said, Trump really destroyed that strategy by speaking to a lot of those same voters and being much further to the right on all of those social issues, but also rhetorically more to the left on economic issues. So I think what the Tea Party was in 2009, 2010, 2011 is over. That doesn't exist anymore. There may still be people who identify as that. But what the Republican Party is, the mainstream Republican Party is pushing is different than that, and what the Trump, Bannon, whatever you want to call that, that area of movement is also different than that. So, but we're now at a situation where, from the Republican side also, they have all the social issues that people may be galvanized around, but ultimately, 
the most important thing that President Trump campaigned on was an implicit promise to create decently paying jobs for people without college degrees. So far, that's not what he's doing. If that continues to be not what he does, and if in some number of years it becomes clear to his base, to people who put hope in him that that's not what's going to happen, then either those people are going to move to a more progressive position or somebody is going to try to organize them by whipping up even greater white nationalist frenzy. And that's going to be a more dangerous time than we're in now. And I think we have to be prepared for that by organizing on a, on a, for a fairer economy ahead of time. And I want to get to this point about expectations uh, that you write. Uh, You write, opposition to single-payer health insurance may not be simply an irrational manifestation of ideology. The conservative strategist William Crystal famously articulated a logical reason for it in a 1993 memo outlining the dangers of President Bill Clinton's health care proposal. Crystal argued that successful health care reform could fundamentally reshape the way people think about the economy, raising their sense of what the public, through its government, could demand of the private sector. How much do you think opposition to Obamacare, for instance, the Affordable Care Act, was driven by a concern corporations had that it would lead to the public having higher expectations of government in general, that Obamacare does not help their agenda of giving the public a sense of failing expectations? It's a big part of it. And I mean, there there are people who've always said, like, you know, for some of the big corporations, especially that compete internationally, single-payer nationalized health insurance should be in their, indus- in, in their interest. You know, if you think of the, the auto companies, you know, they're competing against Japanese and German companies. And for those companies, their workers' health insurance is paid by the government. But Ford and GM and Chrysler have to pay it themselves. So it should be in their interest to have nationalized health insurance. And yet they opposed it. And I think the reason they opposed it is what you said, is that the corporate, not just them, but the corporate lobbies as a whole, are scared that people get into their heads the idea that we as citizens can tax the rich and provide ourselves with a certain level of services, that that's a dangerous idea. And more broadly, you know, when we think about, from the corporate lobby's point of view, they're trying to prevent a political backlash. One of the ways they do that is to try to get us to expect less, to lower our sense of what we have a right to demand, both of our jobs as workers and as the government of the government as citizens. So if we come to feel like um, okay, my kid's in a class with 37 kids, which mine is, but at least it's not 40. Or they laid off all the librarians and we only have music and gym nine weeks a year, but at least we have it for nine weeks a year. Or I don't have comprehensive health insurance, I only have catastrophic, but at least I have that and so far I'm not sick. Or I don't have any paid vacation, but maybe I'll get time off between this job and the next. The more we ratchet down our expectations of what we think we have a right to expect, it normalizes the experience of downward mobility and makes the politics of inequality safer for those at the top because it makes us less likely to respond. I'm sorry, less likely to revolt. In, in union organizing, it's common for people to talk about trying to ignite a revolution of rising expectations, where if a worker is mistreated by their immediate supervisor and they file a grievance and they win and they get it changed, they're kind of flush with the experience of the power of collective action and standing up to the boss. And I think, well, Maybe I'll get involved in trying to negotiate my contract. And if they win that, they think, maybe I'll get involved in trying to change who the mayor is. And we try to keep, like, each victory makes people set their sights higher and be bolder and more ambitious. I think what the corporate lobbies are trying to engineer is a revolution of falling expectations, where we keep ratcheting down what we think we have a right to demand, because that is part of what protects them and enables them to keep making the inequality more extreme and not have the French Revolution that they're scared of. 
How much do you think this corporate agenda is facilitating a rise of the far right? Um, you know, they're dancing with the far right. It's a, I, I think they feel like they're playing with fire, but so far it's going okay. You know, they're not, none of the corporate lobbies backed Trump. They all wanted one of the other candidates who were all, um, who were all basically in line with the whole corporate agenda, even you know, from, from Jeb Bush to Ted Cruz. But now he's in power, and the Republicans control all three branches of the federal government. It's an opportunity to do, I mean, as we've seen, it's an opportunity to do things that you know, may never be doable again for another 20 years. It's a very rare opportunity. So I think that they are, um, it wasn't their choice, but they see this as their ally. They don't want to kill the ally. They don't want to kill the moment. And so they're kind of feeling their way along in trial and error, but trying to make it work. We have been speaking with labor scholar Gordon Lafer. He is author of The 1% Solution, How Corporations Are Remaking America, One State at a Time. Gordon, our final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we might hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. We have heard a lot about Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. In your opinion, how much more or less do U.S. corporations interfere in U.S. elections by using misleading, even false information? I think there's no question U.S. corporations have a greater influence than Russia in our elections. I don't, they may use, I don't know about false information, but I don't think they have to use false information. When so much is determined by money, not just buying politicians, but control of the information that people see by dominating the, the media, you can have misleading information, which is just spin. That's what political consultants, that's their profession, right? And mislead people. And there's a huge amount of, of people being misled about what laws do or about what politicians are for what. So I think there's no question that corporate influence is a, is a much greater distortion of between what, are, what do people actually want, what do the American people actually want their economy to look like, and what do the laws turn out to be than the Russian influence. Gordon, this has been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much. When your book is uh, re-released with any additional information or you have anything else coming out, please contact us. We'd love to have you back on the show. Thanks so much for having me on. Take care. Chuck spoke with Gordon Lafer in February of this year. And finally, we're going to end with our interview with Richard Seymour, one of my very favorite things we've ever done, uh, right after the 2016 election. As we all know, last Tuesday's Electoral College victory by Donald Trump wasn't the fault of Hillary Clinton or Clintonianism. It wasn't the fault of the Democratic Party. No, this whole thing happened because poor white blue-collar workers are bigoted racists who vote likewise. Or not. Here to tell us not, and to give us a perspective from the other side of the pond, writer Richard Seymour is an editor at Salvage Magazine, which you can find at salvage.zone. Welcome back to This Is Hell, Richard. Hi, thanks for having me. It's great having you back on the show. This week, Salvage posted a column by their editors, including Richard, entitled, Saturn Devours His Young President Trump. You write, how could it possibly be Donald Trump, who exchanged the racist dog whistle for a howling at the moon, Donald Trump, who waxed braggadocious about sexual assault, Donald Trump, who exhorted his supporters to violence, wished it on his rivals and openly threatened war crimes. He will be the 45th president of the United States. Two, why was he able to get away with so much when, for instance, in 2004, Howard Dean once screams, yee 
hee-ha and his campaign was destroyed by the media. In the past, it seemed like minor slip-ups would sink a campaign, especially in this supposed era of political correctness. To you, what explains why Trump's talk was so tolerated? I think that the normal patterns of uh, what you might call bourgeois politics, the politics of business, uh, the way it's usually done, uh, would work to uh, demonize somebody who didn't have their patter down cold in the way that Hillary Clinton clearly does. Um, so in 2004, Howard Dean deviated very, very slightly from the center consensus and uh, by expressing a little bit more skepticism about the Iraq war than was uh, acceptable to the governing elites at the time. And the media demonized him for his scream, I suspect partly because to them, that was uh, a genuine mistake, uh, you know, to policy wonks and people who think along the, along those lines. That's a big gauche error, which they're entitled to punish, but also in part because they thought he was politically unacceptable. Um, and so there was an element of that. Uh, with Donald Trump, he comes up in a different time period, a different conjuncture when uh, we've had the credit crunch. We've had a crisis of global capitalism, the worst for generations. And nobody has really been able to make any uh, political or economic or social headway in fundamentally restructuring it. What we've had is the um, establishment rallying around, trying to perpetuate things as usual, uh, with a long list of losers from that. And uh, in Europe, that is mental austerity, but it's also mental austerity in a number of uh, American states, you know, red states in particular. Well, that's been articulated with a long-growing crisis of politics. Uh, every industrial democracy in the world, you're seeing the same patterns. People are not voting increasingly, and it's especially the poor and the unemployed who are not voting. They're withdrawing from the electoral system. On the other side, politicians are withdrawing from the representative system and becoming more and more dependent on the state and integrated with the state. So you've got this detachment going on, and the same detachment is going on with the media. People are supposed to look at CNN, BBC, and whatever, and recognize in it something of their own lives, their own arguments, their own issues. For larger and larger sections of the population, they look at CNN, they look at the media establishment, and it has nothing to do with their lives whatsoever. So you get someone who comes along who's uh, uh, representing himself as an outsider by definition. And the proof that he's an outsider is that he says these things that you're not supposed to say. Um, and to many people, um, particularly on the right uh, of the American spectrum, that's very, very appealing. So is the fi- is the legacy then of the financial crisis, uh, this acceptance or more acceptance of more extreme position, more extreme political uh, positions? Uh, well, extreme is a value term because that implies uh, a norm, which we don't necessarily have to accept. But yeah, I mean, look, uh, the center is breaking down, you know, um, the, the old governing center organized around neoliberalism in the uh, economic dimension um, around. Uh, reducing politics to a few shared basic issues. Um, I mean, the only things that Republicans and Democrats were allowed to agree on, uh, uh, disagree on, pardon me, after the 1990s, um, were things like gun control, abortion rights, you know. Um, the big issues of the day, they generally tended to converge on. Even, you know, stuff like the Iraq war. Initially, the Democrats were all for that. So there was this governing consensus, and that is what has broken down. 
And it's not broken down from the top. It's broken down from the bottom first. The layers of people who were willing to go along with this consensus because their living standards were just about bearable um, have uh, diminished. And larger and larger numbers of people have come out um, finding that their uh, state of decline, economic decline, social decline, political decline, uh, is leading them to question the assumptions that they've been fed for a long, long time. And that's pushing in different directions, pushing to the right, and it's also pushing to the left. We saw Bernie Sanders, of course. The difference um, between the Republicans and the Democratic Party in this election was that the Democratic Party management, its traditional establishment, managed to keep control, and the Republican Party management did not. And that is, I suspect, the uh, biggest reason why the Republican Party candidate won. You and the other editors of Salvage called Trump the maven of alt-right trolls. This week, Oxford Dictionary chose post-truth as 2016's international word of the year. The Washington Post reports the dictionary defines post-truth as relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. Post-truth is not to be confused with truthiness, a subtly different term popularized by Stephen Colbert (laughs) more than a decade ago that described the phenomenon of believing something that feels true, even if it isn't supported by fact. And if anything, the rise of truthiness cleared the path for post-truth, as in a post-truth world, truthiness is all that matters. Now, post-truth beat out the finalist alt-right. And again, you call Donald Trump, the editors of Salvage called Donald Trump the maven of alt-right trolls. But I'm a bit concerned about the use of the word alt-right. To what degree do you think alt-right is a cover for fascism? Yeah, there's an element of that, but it's uh, it's obviously a broader current than uh, outright fascist. Uh, it includes many different elements, hence the use of this sort of slightly broader and more capacious term. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think you could uh, re- regard alt-right as the label under which white supremacist, anti-communist, traditional anti-communist um, reaction is going to be reconstructed um, and redeveloped. I don't think that we're quite at the state of having a full-fledged fascist challenge yet. Uh, I think what we've seen, uh, one of the other editors describes it as neonate fascism. Uh, it's, uh, it's germinal. So uh, there's a, a case for uh, using the term alt-right, in my opinion, provided we are aware of what it actually means. There's an element of when um, they began to call themselves alt-right, there's an element of uh, self-glamorizing. You know, we are alternative. Um, But, you know, terms can be contested and we don't have to accept that. Just a quick comment on what you said about post-truth. One of the problems with this term, of course, is that it implies that what we got before was just the truth. Um, As if (laughs) CNN, BBC and all the rest of them uh, told us the entire truth about Iraq or Afghanistan or the credit crunch and so on and so on. Um, But there is something to this because, you know, the big thing about um, the the so-called alt-right is that... um, their trollishness is not coincidental. The radical right has always had this um, inbred opposition to the rationalist view of communication. You know, the idea that you talk to each other in order to persuade each other of ideas, in order to communicate truth, um, is something that they don't really uh, believe in. They've always believed that communication has a primary function of exerting power. And if you look at what a troll does, The whole point of a troll is to manipulate somebody else, to exert power over them in a very uh, detached, dissociated way. 
um, in a very sadistic way, actually, to enjoy their suffering, to wind them up as much as possible. Um, and I think that that's uh, got a natural overlap with uh, the politics of this emerging alt-right. So I think that's what we're seeing here. There's been lots of blame going around for Hillary Clinton's loss. And you mentioned uh, Jill Stein and Bernie Bros, and you're writing uh, at salvage.zone. On social media, there have been posts showing the number of votes Hillary lost by in, say, Michigan and the number of votes that Jill Stein received, which was more than the difference between Hillary and Trump. So many Democrats have blamed those who voted green uh, for Hillary's loss. Democrats are also blaming those who supported Bernie Sanders because Bernie's attacks on Hillary from the left contributed to lower Democratic Party supporting uh, voter turnout, supposedly. So why don't you think Hillary's election loss was due to what amounts to the left of the Democratic Party? Isn't this like the story goes of Ralph Nader in 2000, proof that the most left-leaning members of the Democratic Party gave us President Trump and that the more left uh, faction of the Democratic Party is the party's biggest obstacle to electoral success. You know, that was really difficult for me to say that question, by the way. I was kind of nauseated by the whole thing. But uh, so is can we just blame this on Jill Stein, Bernie Sanders, just like in 2000? We can blame it on Ralph Nader. Well, no, but um, it, it does, doesn't it seem to imply a really profoundly voluntaristic conception of politics? The idea that this stuff just happens because a small group of people purposely want it to happen, make it happen, as if there aren't these uh, ongoing, deeply rooted social development. You see, here's the question. Would those who voted for Jill Stein necessarily have voted for Hillary Clinton? I'm not convinced that they were, would have done so. The fact that quite a lot of people did not turn out in this election, uh, and more people turned out than we thought initially, but still quite a lot of people did not turn out. There was a lower turnout than in 2012, and certainly much lower than in 2008. Hillary Clinton wasn't able to assemble the Obama coalition. So quite a lot of the people um, who uh, perhaps otherwise would not have voted at all um, uh, turned out and voted for Jill Stein. So at least they were participating. If, if, that, if, you, if you think that elections are of value, if you think that democracy is a, is a value, um, then blaming them for costing Hillary Clinton the election um, is absurd. But also, on top of that, it is the job of political parties to uh, win voters. Unless you want to dissolve the people and choose another, uh, to use uh, Brecht's maxim, um, you just have to accept that if you don't persuade people to come out and vote for you, that's your problem. That's your fault. You can't blame the voters. And, you know, uh, if you want to look at the argument that Bernie Sanders put people off Hillary Clinton by talking about her record, well, um, maybe she should be a little bit more convincing. Maybe she shouldn't have such a lousy record. Maybe it shouldn't be so easy for somebody to stand up and say, Hillary Clinton is a warmonger. Hillary Clinton is corrupt. Hillary Clinton is close to Wall Street. People wouldn't believe it if there wasn't some truth in it. So you write that in 2016, the algorithms do not work. The machines are broken and politics prevails over technique and personality cult. What form of politics? The strength of Trump's vote is counterintuitive to normal operating assumptions about bourgeois politics. Certainly, 
a matter to which we will return later in our conversation. However, what was decisive was not Trump's overweening strength, but Clinton's idiolation of the Democratic base. Idiolation, for those who don't know, is a process in flowering plants grown in partial or complete absence of light, characterized by long, weak stems, smaller leaves, pale yellow color. In your opinion, how did Clinton weaken the Democratic base? Uh, I think that it's not just that Hillary Clinton weakened the Democratic base. Perhaps in a previous electoral cycle, she would not have done so. But at the same time, there's something about third-way politics and the politics of triangulation that depends upon lower voting turnout. Because if your goal is to anchor politics firmly to the center, then what you want is as few people turning out who are uh, poor, unemployed, and likely to sort of want to pull politics uh, well to the left of your comfort zone as possible. So if you think about, um, uh, you know, there's a meme going around about the white working class, but actually quite a lot of the working class includes, um, uh, you know, obviously African-Americans, Latino workers and so on. You think about the, the stuff that's been happening in recent years, Black Lives Matter, the campaign for $15 an hour minimum wage, um, the uh, strikes by the Chicago Teachers Union, these issues all pulled the political spectrum to the left of where it had been and where it would have been. And it forced Hillary Clinton to respond somewhat, uh, partly through the vector of Bernie Sanders, incidentally. But, um, the, you know, so the context of this is that Hillary Clinton wanted to move uh, or keep politics firmly anchored to the look towards the center. What did she do as soon as she knew that Donald Trump had been selected as the candidate? She threw a party. The entire Democratic Party establishment celebrated, they cheered, they thought, this is great because Donald Trump is going to destroy the Republican base. We are going to annex them all for a big, broad center. And uh, we don't have to worry about catering to our own sort of left wing and more working class base anymore. We can focus on suburban Republicans, white suburban Republicans. That's who they went after. And that's why when Hillary Clinton was uh, uh, talking in those debates, she was very confident. She was much more convincing uh, to, you know, to normal politics than Donald Trump. But what she was saying was standard liberal Republican populism. Uh, so it's not surprising to me that she lost quite significantly among African-American women and among Latino women, because those are the constituencies who lose most from this economic model, who lose most from a Wall Street-oriented uh, uh, economic system. Those are the people who uh, lose most from, for example, the mass incarceration system. You can't look at Hillary Clinton's record on racial matters and think that she's somehow going to uh, defend progress in this domain. So I think that uh, Obama uh, was able to uh, draw uh, a bit more of a sense that he would deliver progress, despite his relatively moderate politics, because he offered just a little bit more. He offered health care reform. He offered union reform. So trade union members would get some certain basic rights. Uh, he offered an end to the war in Iraq. Really, what was Hillary Clinton offering? And when you look at it, when uh, the uh, revelations came out about her emails and uh, discussions with Goldman Sachs, even what she did offer, it was very clear that you couldn't necessarily trust her because she was saying very clearly, I've got one persona in public and one persona when I'm talking to my allies in Wall Street. So it doesn't surprise me in the least that quite a lot of people were just put off and couldn't be bothered to vote, even in a context, even in this context in which the alternative, the rival, was a monster like Donald Trump. 
We are speaking with writer Richard Seymour. He is an editor at Salvage Magazine, which you can find at salvage.zone. He's speaking to us live from the UK. This week, Salvage posted a column by their editors, including Richard, entitled Saturn Devours His Young President Trump. You write in her own strategizing. In short, if Hillary Clinton mastered anything in this election, it was the old third-way technique of demoralizing her voters. Beginning in the primary contest, she managed expectations down to close to zero, scolding Sanders supporters that universal health care was never going to happen. Far from embarrassed, she was proud of her plaudits from Henry Kissinger, Laura Bush, and Dick Cheney. You know, the Hillary Clinton campaign seemed like a campaign, at least to me, that was grounded in the 1980s and 1990s. The focus on Reagan Democrats, that is, those who traditionally vote Democrat but switch to Reagan in the 1980s and triangulation that helped Bill Clinton into office and kept him there while supporting policies like welfare reform, crime omnibus bill, financial market deregulation. How much do you think this election will change the direction of the Democratic Party when it comes to strategizing? Will the Democrats continue to chase suburban Republican voters instead of playing to their base, which appears to be abandoning them in favor of voting for other candidates or not voting at all? Well, see, the, I mean, obviously, this is partly contingent on struggles within the Democratic Party. But my sense is that they will want to move further to the right. Uh, because, I mean, first of all, the, since the right-wing government has been elected, since the right-wing president has been elected, uh, the whole pull of politics is going to be towards the right, unless there is serious resistance to that. Um, but second of all, uh, the means that we're hearing about the white working class serve that purpose. Because if you say essentially that um, the white, pardon me, the white working class is where it's at, that's where the major movement uh, took place. Uh, that's a, a renovation of the old Reagan Democrats idea um, for uh, the sort of post millennium, and it's basically the idea that you know working class white people have been tempted by racism because they're so angry, uh, they're so upset with uh, the um, political system. Uh, that they have uh, decided to give racism a chance. And uh, that will probably lead to attempts to formulate a a more, um, a sort of softer version of Trumpism. Um, Some sort of very weak populist ideas, you know, we're going to make Wall Street pay their fair share, all that stuff. I mean, even Hillary talked a little bit like this during the campaign. Uh, But we're going to couple that, I, I expect, in the coming years with, Stuff like um, we have to get our immigration uh, system under control. We have to get our borders under control. Bill Clinton did this back in the day. I mean, so it wouldn't be new for them. Uh, But back in the day, Bill Clinton, uh, who was uh, lauded by progressives, loved by liberals, was an extremely right-wing figure when it came to things like law and order, immigration, race, and uh, related matters, and particularly welfare, you know, the core of the whole thing. So I think that the... um, likelihood is that they're going to move uh, to the more authoritarian, more racist right. That depends, however, on what people do between now and 2020, because Donald Trump could end up having a two-term system, or he could end up being the weakest president in U.S. history and chased out of office early, perhaps. 
You write that the early geography of Trumpism showed that it had laid roots in spatially, culturally, and economically isolated areas where old economy decline has not been superseded by new economy dynamism, however weak. And I remember back in the Clinton era of how they were praising this idea of the new economy and this new digital economy, saying that this is where all the jobs were going to be created while the manufacturing base was disappearing. And I didn't know very many people. I knew. I know a lot of people were in manufacturing in Detroit. They didn't switch over to the new economy. And uh, the people I do did know in the new economy, they weren't people who came from the manufacturing base. So how much of an oversight was it then by the Clintons when they embraced the new economy that was not poised to take in the workers of the old economy? Well, you know, it's um, it's a bit like the argument with the environment. Um, so, for example, uh, Hillary Clinton. Well, ever since Al Gore, for example, uh, the Democrats have lost a lot of votes among coal mining communities because they have committed to some moderate decarbonizing policies. Nothing that would fundamentally buck the market, but essentially just by committing themselves in that direction, they've lost these votes. But underlying that, I think, is that they haven't really proposed any alternatives. You tell people, we're going to wage war on your uh, living conditions. We're going to destroy your livelihood, and we're not going to give you any, any alternative. We're not going to reindustrialize. We're not going to redevelop your industries in a green way. We're not going to give you new jobs, training programs, or anything like that. Hillary, I'm sorry, Bill Clinton was elected in 1992 on a program not just of destroying welfare as we know it. Um, what's often forgotten is that he also had a plank in his program that talked about uh, retraining, uh, developing new jobs, skills, and all the rest of it. Uh, education. And that was uh, Robert Robert Wright's brief to come up with uh, policies along those lines. All that was dropped because uh, it didn't favor the interests of Wall Street. Wall Street wanted policies that were anti-inflationary, that didn't involve public investment, that didn't involve job creation, because job creation would drive up to, you know, create full employment and it would drive up wages and it would pressurize uh, profitability. So, Essentially, they pursued a pro-Wall Street strategy. But if you talk to people about economic conversion, industrial conversion, and you uh, say, for example, where uh, an industry is no longer required or uh, where it is environmentally unsustainable, you say, we're going to convert to something that's actually doable. We're going to promote green energy, you know, for example. And you give people a stake in that, something that actually improves their living standards. They'll go with it. You know, I mean, I don't think people are suicidal. I think that the people are actually have a fairly realistic grasp on their day to day interests. So to what degree then was the election of Trump about a disparity of wealth, but not from the rich to the poor, but from the city centers to those in the hinterlands? Should this be seen not as Democrats turning their backs on working class whites as much as it should be seen as our economy now centering on cities and ignoring rural areas? Well, you know, I mean, uh, th- there's an element of, um, well, there's lots of different elements going on. There's an element of a spatial dynamic going on here. And that's happening everywhere that you see the resentful nationalistic right gain ground. Essentially, it's not the, the poor and the left behind uh, who are the most likely to vote for uh, people like Trump or in the UK, Nigel Farage or Marine Le Pen in France or whatever. It's ironically, it's the people who are there who are slightly better off than everybody else, but who are living in a situation of decline. It's their long-term trajectory of decline that uh, decides it. And particularly if you think about the middle class who are stuck in these areas, the middle class have always done well. They've always been prestigious. 
you know, they've always had a certain status. And suddenly, uh, for a long period of time, they've been in decline. And then you get the credit crunch that makes everything worse. So they're stuck in these regions, these areas that are in meltdown. And they're surrounded by um, the poor and the unemployed and crime and growing drug addiction. Uh, you know, you can see um, people committing suicide more and more. And they resent being left behind with the losers. You know, I mean, that's part of what it is. It's, so it's not just people who are genuinely like, you know, poor and oppressed and all the rest of it. Quite a lot of it is people who are actually a little bit better off, actually not doing too badly, but who fear being pushed down into the situation of the poor, who fear that level of insecurity. So while I don't think we should be callous or indifferent about the very real forms of economic distress that people are going through, the social distress, some of it is about uh, lost prestige and lost status. And of course, that can be organized uh, and symbolized in racist ways, in nationalistic ways. And that's obviously what we saw. You write that in a strategy that should be unbelievable. Newly leaked emails show that the Democrat mach- Democratic machine actively bolstered the hardest right bigots of the Republicans in what they called the Pied Piper strategy to pull that party right, leaving the Democrats that mythicized center ground. To repeat The Democrats cynically and deliberately enabled racist, nativist, misogynist, homophobic thuggery out of political calculation. How much do you blame the Democratic Party then for the alt-right rising to power in Washington, D.C.? I think they've got a role in it. Um, But I don't, I mean, look, I think that we uh, could say their strategy, irrespective of uh, what proportion of the total blame they have, their strategy was insane. I mean, it's incredible that they thought that the best thing to do would be to promote uh, the most ultra-reactionaries in American politics, but they really believed that that was the best thing and that that would enable them to win. Um, They fundamentally didn't understand the political climate that they're in. So even on their own terms, even in terms of their own interests, this strategy of triangulation, of uh, locking their uh, rivals out to the hard right, as hard right as possible, and enabling themselves to monopolize a big space from the center right to the, well, to the center. Um, essentially, that, um, uh, that strategy uh, was designed, as you said earlier, for the 1990s. It was designed for a time when there was still just enough affluence to be getting on with. Uh, it was not designed for a time of post-credit crunch meltdown and complete detachment from the political establishment. Um, One of the things that that we have to bear in mind here is that there's a whole question of representation. You know, um, to to an extent, we have this idea of democracy as a mirror, as something that represents us by mirroring us, uh, showing us what we're like. And when we get a political establishment, uh, when the mirror of democracy cracks and warps, and it no longer seems to uh, resemble us at all, What you can get is individuals like Trump and, uh, you know, his uh, uh, surrounding figures uh, who offer to a certain group of people what to them is a more flattering image of themselves. I mean, God knows why anybody should look at Trump and see themselves and be flattered by that. But some people do. And I think it's because he promises them a sense of power. I think it's because uh, he promises them that their lost status and their lost prestige will be recuperated. And, of course, he tells them that they've lost out to China, they've lost out to Mexicans, they've lost out to immigrants, and he's going to give them their status back. So, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's a complicated thing. 
There's lots of different agencies involved. But um, given that we're in a situation after this election where everybody's looking to point fingers everywhere but at the Democratic Party leadership, where the Democratic Party will be spinning and rationalizing furiously when they would rather blame Susan Sarandon or Jill Stein or even, God help us, Gary Johnson, um, than look at their own strategy. I think that uh, it's, uh, it's necessary to foreground that. You and the other writers of Salvage magazine uh, write that the Supreme Court is lost to liberals and Roe versus Wade is likely to be overturned. Some of Trump's policies he will not, cannot enact. He cannot make Mexico pay for any wall he might build, beautiful or not. He cannot ban Muslims from entering the United States, but this is cold comfort, unconstrained with Republican majorities in both houses and even the Republican moderates who thought he had a chance now feeling uh, permitted or obligated to. Uh, back his alt right direction, he can uh, you know appro- he can appropriate and jury rig such measures and usher in a program of delirious murderous reaction, which is to say nothing of the concomitant cultural shift, the emboldening of resentment, spite, and social sadism, and of course the promised bonuses for newly privileged sectors of capital above all energy, construction, and those associated with the military-industrial complex. What impact do you think a Trump presidency will have on U.S. culture? Because I've already received an email from a Mexican-American friend of mine who told me that a car with a white nationalist decal and coded white nationalist personalized license plates aggressively attempt to drive him off the road. We have the spike in violence against uh, uh, people of color in the U.S. We have a spike here in Chicago of calls to suicide hotlines. Uh, so what impact do you think Trump being president will have on U.S. culture? Well, I can look at uh, you from across the pond and uh, look at the situation in the United Kingdom after Brexit, which is a more complicated situation, but nonetheless one with some of the similar tendencies. Um, And I think that it's empowering the nationalists, the racists. Um, It's empowering people who for a long time have felt, justly or not, have felt humiliated. Now, they they have understood that humiliation in racial terms. They've understood that sense of humiliation in the sense that younger people who are more multiracial, more socially liberal, are uh, taking the Michael out of us. Uh, they are um, humiliating us. You know, we're being left behind. And they are going to uh, use this time of feeling empowered, some of them, to exact some sort of sense of revenge. Um, But also, I mean, just to give it a sense of an intelligent political strategy behind it, they know that their time is limited. Long-term social demographic trends are very clear. The people who have gained power uh, through Brexit and through the Trump victory are gaining power perhaps for the last time. They have one chance to make good on this. They have one chance to do something irreversible, one chance to fundamentally alter the balance of power and the cultural dynamics in the country. And if that means going around in what are the equivalent of uh, old Ku Klux Klan Knight Rider um, uh, sort of terror raids, um, then that's going to be one of the things that they're going to do. I think that, however, they are weak. And this is something that um, I would emphasize. They don't represent the majority. The majority um, uh, would be those who didn't vote and those who voted for somebody else. Um, They don't represent the growing forces of the future. 
And although they represent the more affluent among the population, this is really important. Trump did not win the American ruling class, that is, the, the big business, corporations, Wall Street, and all the rest of it. The support he did get from a few billionaires was outliers, right? So the difference here um, with, as compared to, say, President Bush is that uh, Trump is going to try and forge some alliances with relatively um, privileged sectors of capital, um, like construction, oil, energy, defense, and so on, um, pharmaceuticals. And he's going to form a sort of corrupt compact with them. Uh, and, you know, try and use that to uh, spur some sort of uh, process of construction and development so that he gets some sort of legitimacy. Um, I don't think it's going to work, by the way, but that's going to be the idea. But the thing about it is, I don't think he will ever have the business class on board. He won't have the majority of the working class on board. And if uh, conditions, economic conditions begin to uh, decline and people begin to lose money um, and become poorer, he'll lose bigger parts of the middle class as well. So there's a chance, uh, every chance, that if people are audacious now and start sticking the boot in and don't pay any attention to the deferential attitude, you know, well, he's the elected president, we have to give him a chance. Don't give any notice to that. Start sticking the boot in now, and people will see that within a year or two, he will look, I mean, not even a year or two, probably even sooner, he will look like, the weakest president in U.S. history. He will be a lame duck. He won't be able to implement most of the really disgusting things that he wants to implement. And, uh, you know, we might find the Democratic Party having to respond to that. Or we might find that a, a better party emerges from the ruins. You write that the left must remain hard, not only in its support, but uh, for, uh, support for, but its aggressive militant solidarity with migrants, with the black activists, insisting that the police be held to account against whom an onslaught is to be expected. We must work vigorously in united fronts without blunting our politics of opposition, without succumbing to the forthcoming wave of sentimentality about Obama, which is something I fear. The mechanisms of drone death, whistleblower attack, and trenchant state surveillance now in the hands of a bloviating monster are, of course, Obama's mechanisms. In response to the liberals with whom we will march, who insist to us that love trumps hate, we must argue instead for more hate, to hate more, to hate harder in the right direction. Why do you think hate will be successful and why is it so important to embrace hate? Well, I think it's important to have the appropriate affect when you're dealing with an enemy. And the, I mean, it's not about uh, egos, it's not about personalities, it's about the fact that these people who have just taken power, are about to go on the offensive against people who we should be in solidarity with, people who uh, we should be standing together with, people who uh, we have something in common with, uh, who, with whom we share interests. So, I mean, it seems to me that um, the problem with the uh, sentimentality about Obama, and I get it, I understand it, because Obama is a very likable person in some ways. Uh, the Obama-Biden memes are very cute, you know, uh, they're very funny, but they're also a a, a fundamental idealization of what really uh, happened and what really goes on. And it's the same dynamic that led to people idealizing Hillary Clinton. And it ties you to a political strategy that doesn't work, that doesn't get you what you want. It ties you to a strategy that ends up with Donald Trump. So it seems to me that um, rather than deifying the liberal um, uh, or even, you know, the 
uh, sort of more left-wing uh, elements of the Democratic Party leadership who will call for us to uh, be peaceful, who will call for us to respect the office of presidency. We have to start with where the people who are on the worst receiving end of this coming wave of violence and spite actually are. Um, so when it comes to uh, people who are going to be um, the effective forces of resistance against Trump, it's not going to be the triangulators in the Democratic Party. They've been tested to death. The strategy of triangulation has now been done to death. It is self-destructive. So it is time to have a different strategy. And the strategy that uh, I think uh, is the, the only one that can work here in this context, but in general is probably a better strategy overall, is one which starts outside the spectacle, outside the establishment mainstream, starts with the people who are excluded, who are marginalized, not the people who are uh, trapped in a kind of nationalist racist resentment, but the people who are progressive, forward thinking, but who are victimized by the system. Um, and I think that, you know, we're going to see quite a lot of big protests um, in the coming, and we already have seen quite a lot of them, but we're going to see quite a lot of big protests. And under Trump, I bet you, there's going to be a huge ramping up in the authoritarian state apparatuses. He's appointed someone to uh, attorney general, or he's planning to appoint someone to attorney general, who uh, comes from that tradition of old southern white supremacist anti-communism, who thinks that the NAACP was communist-inspired, who thinks civil rights is un-American, and all the rest of it. And, you know, these old southern attorney generals were the ones who set the dogs of the state on uh, the civil rights movement. They're the ones who tilted the state apparatuses in a much more authoritarian direction. And I suspect that's what's going to happen here. We're going to see the police let loose on anybody who protests, anybody who protests against Trump. Remember when the protesters broke into his uh, rallies and he said, beat the crap out of them. You know, that's what they're going to be looking for. I think they're going to uh, formalize and legitimize that kind of politics. And that's one thing I, I fear that the Democratic Party leadership and mainstream will let them get away with, because the Democratic Party has never been shy of giving the police more powers, of toughening up uh, immigration controls, of toughening up uh, ICE raids. Obama um, deported millions of uh, Mexicans, more uh, people than any other president in history. Trump made a big deal of this in his campaign in order to legitimize what he was doing. So I fear that the Democratic Party leadership is not going to be a very good ally in the struggle. So the, ne the need and the necessity is to focus on those people who are willing to risk something, who are willing to do something quite militant and disruptive, because that's where ultimately the power of ordinary people lies. It's in their ability to withdraw cooperation. Can we, can all the millennials who are listening right now, can they simply blame the election of Trump on all those damn hippie baby boomer parents and grandparents who voted them into power? Is the real problem baby boomers, not poor white bigots? Uh, well, you know, there's some poor white bigots out there. Uh, I come from a poor white background, if you want to know, and uh, I, I would never idealize it or romanticize it. There's quite a lot of them. Uh, bigots among them. But nonetheless, they aren't uh, the major uh, force here. In terms of the generational question, there is, there just is a generational aspect to this. Um, but the problem is that uh, it's not straightforward um, because it's always over uh, overlapping, um, intersecting with other things. So older people, um, older white people in particular, tend to have a little bit more property. They tend to have, uh, be more likely to have a house. 
Um, and they, of course, in this context, they tend to be ones who have built up their wealth and their well-being to the extent that they have it um, in a system which was not as completely uh, destroyed as post-credit crunch. So, you know, if you're young coming up now, um, quite a lot of the time it's much harder to get a higher education. It's much more expensive. It's much harder to get into the labor market. It's much more likely that you're going to be frozen out of it. Uh, it's much harder to get a house or to get any kind of property. Rents are higher. There's a, uh, you know, so there's there's a lot more a lot more of the sort of daily quiddity of class experience falls much more hard on the young. Okay, I mean, I, I we shouldn't absolutize because quite a lot of old people voted for Bernie Sanders, voted for Hillary Clinton, voted for Jill Stein, or voted for somebody else, um, didn't vote for Donald Trump. So we should always be aware that these are just trends. But the fact is, there is this trend here, and we should be aware of it. But that's also a reason for optimism. I mean, you know, I, I'm not going along with people who say the old people should just get into the urn already. But, uh, you know, we can be confident that the coming social demographic changes are going to favor us provided we act on them appropriately, provided we don't just let someone else uh, take control of the situation, provided we're not passive. I mean, that's the big problem with the political system that we have. It encourages us to be passive, to let other people do it for us. And that strategy has led to Donald Trump. Writer Richard Seymour is an editor at Salvage magazine, which you can find at salvage.zone. This week, Salvage posted a column by their editors, including Richard, entitled Saturn Devours His Young President Trump. Richard was on This Is Hell earlier this year to discuss his amazing latest book, Corbin, The Strange Rebirth of Radical Politics. And I want to uh, strongly suggest to all of our listeners that they go and listen or go and read your article, Saturn Devours His Young President Trump, because one of the, the things that we didn't even touch on is you write about uh, Bernie Sanders' candidacy. And there's another topic, and that kind of leads to the question from hell, as we do with all of our guests. The final question that we have with each and one of our guests is uh, the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or the audience is going to hate your response. Here's what I posted on Facebook this week. Both Mother Jones and the nation sent press releases asking me to sign a petition thanking Hillary Clinton for running for president. I promise I'll get to it as soon as I'm done signing this petition thanking Debbie Wasserman Schultz for fixing the primary procedure. So uh, my post got a ton of likes and lots of discussion, including claims that I am misogynist. How much did misogyny, in your opinion, lead to a Trump White House, either because voters hated Hillary because she is a woman or like Trump because of the negative way he has treated women. And because one of the things that you point out in your article is this focus on uh, misogyny instead of the focus on patriarchy. So how much do you think misogyny led to the election of Donald Trump? I mean, look, we would be crazy to overlook the uh, sort of the libidinized charge of misogyny, the fact that it has a certain erogenous, erotic appeal uh, for a lot of people. I mean, the whole thing about Trump is that he comes out and says these outrageous things, and he sort of strikes the um, figure of a sort of obscene father figure, you know. That's, uh, and he's quite appealing to quite a lot of Americans, including, it has to be said, quite a lot of women. Um, and that sort of tells you something about the dynamics of patriarchy. Um, so I'm not, I, I don't think we should exclude that. However, we should complicate the picture. First of all, the right has never been completely uh, not in favor of electing women. Uh, particularly, you know, women like Margaret Thatcher, for example, you know, I mean, 
women who are um, essentially not any threat to patriarchy. Okay, um, there there are specific reasons why they hate Hillary Clinton, and they always have because they've always sort of been deluded that she's some sort of progressive and she's going to take away their property and you know give it to black people and so on. You know that's essentially the sort of dynamic there. But um, what I would also say is that yes, you can make space for the fact that there is a contingent even of the left that has sort of barely sublimated misogyny, you know, a sense that, you know, or at least a sense that women's issues don't really matter. They're not fundamental. They're not important. You know, sexism is not the most fundamental issue. You can make space for that. That's definitely there. But you have to uh, integrate that into a bigger picture. If you're not even willing to be critical of Hillary Clinton's record, you're just going to miss the point. You're not going to convince anybody, for one thing. One of the most frustrating things during this election was how many people kept coming out, going on and on about sexism and misogyny and saying, uh, yes, I mean, you're right about that. There is a lot of sexism and misogyny, but reducing everything to that and being totally oblivious of everything else that you might say. And so we got this uh, really strenuous, stilted and tendentious critique of so-called Bernie bros, you know, who uh, were so mean to Hillary, not because they had fundamental and substantial political disagreements with her, but because they were privileged and entitled bros, you know. Um, I think that you can, you would persuade more people of your analysis of um, the need to fight sexism, of your analysis of the centrality of sexism to this situation, if you didn't start by dismissing every other concern that they have. And I feel that um, that kind of reductive reading of the situation is one that favors a kind of Democratic Party apologia, one that favors uh, justifying and sucking up to the elites of the country, uh, rather than subjecting them to a serious critical appraisal. One other thing about this, let's be clear. Hillary Clinton is no feminist, never has been, never shown a lick of solidarity to any woman in struggle, right? She just justified herself in this campaign by saying, you know, I'm going to stick up for poor women. Well, she's sticking up for poor women when she was helping to impose welfare cuts on them. Well, she's sticking up for poor women when she said states should have the right to, defend, uh, to have their own abortion policy. Um, you know, I mean, this is somebody who has always stuck up for conservative, middle-of-the-road family values. And that's where she comes from. And I think that's where she wanted to end up in her campaign, despite all the early sort of uh, primary talk about being a progressive. So while we shouldn't dismiss at all the talk about sexism, it's absolutely fundamental, it's central, it's a big issue. Um, you can't reduce the situation to that. And anybody who tries to do so, I'd be rather suspicious of. Richard, it is always a pleasure speaking with you on This Is Hell. It really is. Thank you so much for returning to our show. People should check out Richard's writing over at salvage.zone. Writer Richard Seymour has been our first guest this week. Thank you again so much for being on our show. Uh, Thank you for having me. Always great to talk to you, sir. Take care. Bye-bye. Chuck spoke with Richard Seymour in November of 2016. Uh, Well, that was... uh... (laughs) <laughs> that was depressing, wasn't it? Uh, thank you for listening to this special playlist episode of This Is Hell. Hopefully back next week with another four hours of hell. I already have it booked, so uh, Chuck's health holds up. We'll be hearing from Matt Chrisman and Brendan James from Chapo Trap House uh, about their book, A Chapo Guide to Revolution. Also, Kehinde Andrews will be talking about his book, Back to Black, Retelling Black Radicalism for the 21st Century, Brian Muir will be checking in from Brazil. And Max Haven will be talking about his book, Art After Money, Money After Art, Creative Strategies Against Financialization. We've been looking forward to that book for a really long time. Um, Okay, well, 
thanks everybody thanks for listening talk to you soon see you on the radio bye thank you for listening to this is hell for more interview hell and to support the show visit thisishell.com.